Welcome to Acne Employment. We'll either find you a job or we won't. No openings. No openings. No openings. No openings. Congratulations, you got the job. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode number 10 of the Square Waves FM podcast. We are thrilled and pleased as punch to have you all along for the ride with us. Um, as always, I am uh, one of your two co-hosts, the more handsome of the two co-hosts, if I might say. I am uh, Colonel... What am I? I don't know. I'm I'm Colonel ah! Wesley Von Tallywacker. <laughs> way, way to plan ahead for that. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> the most planning I've ever done. And my nearly as handsome, but not quite as handsome ho- co- co-host is. Uh... Oh, I'm not going to answer to that. Your, your... <laughs> I saw you were going to say my nearly handsome ho. Um... <laughs> That's none of the business uh, of our listeners. Let's just call you co-host and leave the rest of their imagination. <laughs> this is Chris. I'm still waking up, so until I'm fully caffeinated. I will be a little quiet for the first couple of minutes. And with us this morning is the very mighty pilot himself. Please introduce yourself. Oh, hi, everyone. Uh, it's Chris Olson. Go by uh, CGO Apps on Twitter. And uh, I am not handsome at all. So uh, I guess uh, I uh, must have gotten on this podcast some other way. But very happy to be here. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. That's right. No, you, a have, humble, you have less, a humble less pilot, uh, visible I, talents, I guess. I don't believe here. it. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Yeah. Very, very glad to have you aboard with us, Chris. Um, some of our listeners may remember Chris from uh, Anatoly's Dos Nostalgic podcast. He did a really informative and comprehensive show about flight simulators, as he is uh, quite the aficionado of flight and uh, reasonable approximations thereof. You mentioned a whole bunch of uh, my favorite games in that podcast and taught me about a whole bunch of other ones as well. So I uh, highly recommend that one. I appreciate that. I had such a good time. I, my uh, one regret is that uh, I, I pretty much talked over Anatoly for about the first half of that podcast. I feel terrible about that. One of the reasons I like listening to podcasts is to listen to other people. Anatoly's got such a great voice, and he's, he's got you know so <laughs> so much he? knowledge and, and history. And I'm just like, man, I uh, don't worry. I probably should don't have worry, tried Anatoly. To... You know, Anatoly uh, more than made up for it last week with us. He, uh, <laughs> he got on the floor for the first two hours because I. I ran out of macromedia stuff after about 20 minutes. Yes, <laughs> as did I. And he said it too. He said, you know, he said, one of the reasons I want to do this podcast is to learn some stuff, but I went, yeah, I went a little bit overboard. So I uh, tried to rectify that in the second half, but uh, I do uh, regret being uh, a little bit uh, verbose, I guess. That was a pretty long one. So, yes, indeed. Well, it wasn't oh, a problem for me. I love the, I love the kind of like a brief history of flight sims because uh, other than um, Joe Mastriani's episode on LucasArts flight sims, there actually isn't much out there in terms of uh, information on DOS flight sims, and I'm a huge, 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 huge fan of space and uh, regular flight sims, so that was super cool, and I loved it. Well, right on. I I appreciate that. I had so much fun doing it, and I've gotten uh, a lot of good feedback, and now it's kind of, you know, it's it's there for the ages, so I I would really uh, just thrilled that I, I, you know, got the chance to go on, so, and I'm Equally as happy to be on with you, Jets. So thanks again. Awesome. 
Oh yeah, our pleasure. It's kind of a funny thing. It seems that uh, flight sim enthusiasts aren't quite as nostalgic as other gamers and even other simulation enthusiasts. Like um, racing enthusiasts seem to have a special place in their heart for oh, what's it called? Grand Prix Legends, I think. Yeah. By, oh by yeah. Virus. Right. Yeah, that's, that's kind of like that's kind of uh, revered as like the be all end all of like classic cars. And like undrivable oh, machines, and for whatever reason, I, like I guess maybe it makes sense that uh, flight sim fans seem to be all the more um, they hold in higher regard, like the uh, ability to simulate the physics, I suppose, which is something that's very dependent on CPUs getting faster. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Although I, I I would say um, there it was kind of an interesting development. They on Steam, I'm sure you guys probably know this, but uh, they re-released Flight Simulator X or Flight Simulator yeah. Ten, right. and it. It was a huge response. I mean, I think it was on sale for the holiday. And I mean, I think I didn't, uh, when it actually came out, somebody purchased for me as a gift. And it was an expensive piece of software with the add-ons and everything that they bundled together. I think you were essentially getting almost $75, $80 worth of stuff in whatever, wow. you know, 2000 Dollars or whatever the Flight Simulator 10 came out mm-hmm. um, for for five bucks, and I guess it was I guess it did pretty well. So I think you're you're absolutely right in that there's always been this you know this drive to get you know more realistic and with the virtual reality and Oculus and Cast AR and some of these things coming out, I think even more so that people are kind of looking and going, all right, the the super state of the art flight sims are kind of going to come back, or there's going to be a kind of a right. new um, era to the uh, to the genre, but um, there are still there's still a, a dedicated number of folks who will at least in the flight simulator Microsoft flight simulator regime still hold on to their old versions and um, some of that is just compatibility where you know you've got loads and loads of add-ons that for some reason uh, don't work in a 64-bit environment or something like that but in general I think you're absolutely right and especially I I don't see a whole lot on the flight sims going back a long way, like talking early right. 80s and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, as the I sublogic stuff is basically, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, I was thinking about the sublogic flight sims that Microsoft ended up buying up. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody even knows that Microsoft flight sim was a sublogic simulation before it <laughs> basically got rebranded and uh, taken over. So, I'm actually yeah. looking at a copy of this is. Well, I don't know if this is much off topic. It's one of the earliest CD-ROMs I saw. We'll get to our main topic in a bit, but. Um, I'm looking at a copy of Flight Unlimited. Um, do you guys, are you guys familiar with that? Oh, yeah, oh, by Terminal definitely. Reality, is it? Uh, I think it was actually a Looking Glass. Yeah, thing. Looking Glass. Yes, indeed. Oh, okay. Um, and, you might uh, be thinking of the, the right one, but yeah, oh, Flight Unlimited. That, that just love it. Yeah, That I mean, was the most beautiful screenshots yeah. I've ever seen. I've never Gosh. seen it in motion, that game. Oh, yeah, the thing, that, that, that's where the game actually pays off. Because I was thinking about, you know, one of the reasons I think maybe Flight Sims, one of the many reasons I think Flight Sims kind of disappeared off the radar was um, Flight Unlimited is the only one, and I'm welcome to be corrected by this because I, I spent months researching this a couple of years ago, that re- relies on a completely different non-Newtonian flight model um, than we normally see. This one actually re- relies on... Um, one based on air pressure. Um, it's, they're they're called Navier-Stokes equations. Are you guys familiar with any of this stuff? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Nope. And uh, Chris, you're you're absolutely right. Um, and you're probably uh, much more knowledgeable about the specifics of it than I am. But uh, it was a real. Even when the when the when this when the product came out, it was a it was a big coup to be able to 
use this very different model from both a programming and kind of implementation standpoint and have it yeah. run so well. I, if I remember, though, it was a little bit of a resource hog. You needed a pretty, for the time, oh, yeah. a pretty good computer a to, uh, to really get kind of that fluid kind of motion. But if you could do it, if, if you were met or exceeded the system specs or the recommended ones, it was, uh, it was incredible. And uh, yeah. um, I hinted at it. I didn't really get, um, get a chance to really emphasize it because you know, we were talking about so many Sims and, on Anatoly's podcast. But um, this notion of immersion is something I keep coming back to, whether it's adventure games, flight sims, other things. And that game or that simulation uh, just hit it out of the park. That just the little things, a little attention to detail, whether it's you know planning in the F in the FBO or all the way to the cockpit, right. and the the way that uh, you know if you overstress the aircraft, how it would respond. To know that that was all just lovingly you know researched and put in. Um, to be honest, I, I I find myself saying this a lot. You, you, the phrase kind of ahead of its time maybe maybe applies a little bit. They had uh, support for that uh, VFX one Forte headset. Um, that which I have I have very fond memories of. Yeah, was the head I, tracking thing. It was, yeah, oh, exactly. You know, and that. Or, so, well, I guess it was a full on VR headset. Yeah, so it was it was the really oh. goofy looking. Uh, you looked like a Cylon or something wearing it uh, um, <laughs> kind of deal. Uh, but uh, you know, of course, that was expensive hardware and. Uh, just like so many things, it didn't really catch on. I, so I think that both the sim and kind of the built-in hardware support and directions they wanted to go, um, just, you know, and it was it's kind of sad. It was kind of at the tail end or approaching the end of that enormous popularity of flight sims where it's hard to really to, to kind of draw it down. But uh, if you look at, um, like, Microprose and, you know, how prolific they were with, with putting stuff out, uh, it all kind of really... You know, kind of Windows ninety eight right around that time frame, uh, kind of really ceased where you didn't see too much after that. But definitely, as far as I know, um, you're right, and that was the only one to use that uh, um, the Stokes equation. And uh, what a what a fantastic product! I you know I I wish I'd been able to play it more. I, Flight Unlimited came out at kind of the uh, in a spot where I wasn't. Uh, I think I was still in high school, but. Uh, I didn't wasn't able to do nearly as much gaming in college, and uh, if the product came out a few years beforehand, I think I probably would have worn out the CD. Or you know, it was. But yeah, it was great. Definitely, uh, definitely a good one. Hoping to see uh, something similar to that in this kind of new virtual reality era that's uh, maybe upon us. Oh yeah, that's something I've been thinking about lately. Is just the you know having seen a few videos of the latest and greatest VR technologies, and it seems like Valve kind of has the best handle on actually moving around in your actual physical environment and interacting with things right. while you're standing up and walking. But for the most part, it seems to me like VR is going to best accentuate the experience of doing something while you're sitting in a chair and looking around you. And what better scenario for that could there be than a simulator of some vehicle? So I think we're going to enter another golden age of simulators in the next couple of years, which is really exciting. I, I, I think yeah, you're right, and I, 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 I don't so. mean – I'm sorry to, to get you guys so off topic here, but this is obviously something I, I enjoy quite a bit. But, Wouldn't be uh, the first time. The, um, you know, I remember and, – and I never had this, but uh, there was uh, – with one of the iterations of Microsoft Life Center, probably into the Windows era – uh, there was this this uh, notion that you could have multiple displays, multiple monitors, and uh, people right. would do that and go really hog wild and get uh, even to the point where you know there were you know, stories and articles and whatnot about people 
um, configuring cockpits and making, you know, just getting USB switches, you know, on or off to, to have toggle switches. And really, as you can imagine, with any type of DIY, uh, you know, pe- anywhere from just two monitors to a full-blown 747 cockpit and everything in between and various levels of, uh, you know, immersion in reality and, and so on and so forth. Um, but that was, you know, to have two or maybe even four monitors to say, so, okay, I'm going to look out the left window and here's what I'm going to see. But even with that, um, and honestly, even in the simulator that I have to go into for my, for my job, um, you know, it's got good visuals and it's Google Earth based and uh, it's like 180 degrees of visual, but it's still very evident that, that it's a simulator. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's great and it's realistic, but, and of course it's full motion and everything else. But even then, um, I think with VR, where you can just and I guess um, Star Citizen is, is is supposedly, which I'm I don't have a nearly a good enough computer to even think about. Probably wouldn't even get in my door. Let's just put it that way. It would just be returned to sender because I don't have a powerful enough machine. But mm-hmm. um, from the from the stuff I've been able to follow and, and track, and with some of the other projects too. Um, where you just turn your head and it's perfect. You see panels, or, or I guess you guys were talking about with Elite, or maybe it was Joe, where you know you can turn your head, you see a computer, you turn mm-hmm. back forward, you see the you know right. the heads-up display. What an amazing phenomenon! It's something that we don't even really have in in our field, and maybe uh, I don't know if it's going to go that way or not. Probably not because we need the uh, the actual you know physical ability to, to turn switches and manipulate controls. But I seem to remember I, hearing something actually about like if. 18 pilots or something that's probably an old too old of a plane but something about eye tracking and the heads up display and targeting oh yeah you know they they have used it i want to say i, I think you're right there was a an f-18 and there was also i think there was a when before they i don't know if they officially killed it but uh the f-16 one of the advanced models or they were going to have uh, like a force feedback stick was a big thing and with that i want to say they were looking at uh, like targeting and everything else with just eye movement and uh you know, just, you know, in the thought that, all right, you're in a dogfight or you're in some kind of high-speed, uh, you know, situation where, uh, you know, just a, a glance is going to be enough to confirm. And I don't know the current status of that with the, like, the F-35 or, or any of that stuff. that it, it, They might very well use that. But they de- it was definitely on the drawing board at some point, and, uh, um, and it might be, um, yeah, it certainly might be in, in the future. But uh, it, honestly, with, with regard to flight sims, um, Putting on an Oculus might even you you might get a a level of immersion that might best what we get in the full motion simulators to where you know it's all right there and you know the head panning and everything is really I haven't had a chance to try an Oculus I'll, I'm sure I'll hopefully I'll have a a friend who'll get one or find a trade show or something to be able to try it out but um, there's already um, a couple of flight sims just from the kind of civilian standpoint where the graphics are so detailed and so lifelike that they're basically just tailor-made for, you know, putting on an Oculus, and I'm sure they're building in support or everything like that. So it is exciting. It really, um, you know, as we've seen several kind of classic gaming genres maybe reborn or to kind of come back up uh, into the interest of the kind of computing and gaming public, I, I hope the same thing happens with simulators, that's for sure. Oh, no question. I'm certain. All right. Oh, that was an enthusiastic preamble. <laughs> I love it. I'll mention, by the way, to our listeners that uh, our our guest Chris, who is an airline pilot, is on a fixed schedule today, so he's going to keep us honest and uh, 
restrict us to about two hours today. So no doubt we will continue our conversation of this week's topic uh, in a subsequent episode. But uh, until then, you can expect about a two-hour show today, guys. So um, I have a little bit of uh, pre-show, as I call it uh, quizzically, business to uh, discuss. Um, for lack of any other, uh, any other, uh, precedent, uh, that is set every, well, every week or whatever, I will just say that, um, in terms of corrections today, we were contacted by everyone who told us that everything is wrong. <laughs> in fact, we, awesome. I don't think we got a single correction last week. Oh, well, that's because Anatoly did the talking for the most part, so. <laughs> I was just going to say, unless Anatoly corrected Anatoly, there's, there's not going to be a correction. This week. I know. Well, he's basically the gospel of DOS, right? So. He, he knows his stuff. <laughs> so we'll just leave it at that. Thank you, Anatoly, for saving us the uh, slings and arrows for one week. Um, I um, Oh, we have an awesome call from uh, oh, our, yeah, right. a listener of ours, Josh Miller. Thank you so much, Josh, for this awesome call. It's short and sweet and just uh, packed full of uh, extremely wonderful, hilarious, nerdly goodness. So I'm going to put on this quick uh, call. Hey guys, Josh here, at JSHMLR on Twitter. Sorry for the crappy audio quality, but I wanted to get this out of my head and off to you while it was still fresh. I wanted to share with you my Diablo multiplayer experience. If you remember in Diablo, some players had little tags in front of their usernames. Uh, the tags were used to designate clan names. I was a member of an anti-PK clan, an anti-player killer clan. I don't remember the name of it. I'm sure it had Lord of something in it or or vipers or whatever uh we would uh anyway my clan mates and i would chat in icq when we weren't playing or chatting in the in the general chat rooms and uh and chris i i i didn't have a icq number um as impressive as yours but i do remember that it had 666 in it uh, which my clanmates thought was pretty cool, and I, I was pretty proud of. I later lost it in the in the hack, uh, uh, similar to you did. And I the, the my number has since escaped me. Anyway, in chat one time, I did something that pissed off my clan leader, who was a major dick anyway, and uh, I was probably spamming the channel or making a joke or whatever. Uh, all of a sudden, I, I see one of his toadies spring up my uh, IP address, which at the time, I was a teenager, didn't really know much about anything, um, didn't really think anything of it until I got the big blue screen of death and uh, later learned that I had been wind nuked. Um, I remember at the time, I was scared half to death for some reason, and I quit the clan. So after I quit the clan, I was angry, I wanted to get back, I was, you know, Fuck the world, so I started modding my character with a Diablo trainer. If you remember the Diablo trainers, I think I used Boba Fett, and uh, I started. Be I became a PK. So I would go into a, I'd go into a realm and wreak as much havoc as possible, and then uh, you know just uh, type some garbage into chat and then leave. So I wanted to share that story with you, guys. I really, really love the podcast. Keep up the great work. It brings back a ton of memories, and uh, you guys have great chemistry. You're doing a great job. Keep up the great work. Look forward to the future episodes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Josh. That was such a great tale. That had everything. <laughs> I love how uh, he brought up uh, uh, the Blue Screen of Death uh, hack program that we had back in those days. There was a couple of those, weren't there? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I was never aware of those until around college myself. No doubt they were they they predate that by 
by a good while. <laughs> oh, that's great. And I, I love how uh, I've been bragging about my low ICQ number for a good 15 years or so now. And just in, since we started this podcast, have I understood the, the inadequacy of my ICQ number? Chris, yours is like 400,000 numbers lower than me, and Josh's has 666 in it. I just feel like a big schlub now. Well, you're you're amongst the elite, I guess, the elite of the uh, nerd generation. <laughs> I'm 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 the bottom of the elite, I guess. I'm pretty sure I should put this on a resume someday. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm gonna have to take mine off of mine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, so thank you very much, Chris. That was an awesome story. We we always uh, encourage and invite uh, our listeners to uh, write in with uh, tales of uh, any of our past or even future topics that you want to discuss. Yes. Any of your nerdly memories, please go right ahead and send and, us. A, uh, an email. And Josh, um, your copy of uh, Multimedia Megapack compilation is on its way. So hopefully you will hear this before it arrives at your door. Yeah, yeah. Oh, mine is supposed to mine's supposed to come on, on Monday. We, we've got a whole bunch of these being sent out, so thanks for sending us your addresses all. I don't, is it too late for... Uh, have you exhausted your uh, supply yet? I've got... It was the it was the most limited print run of any uh, of any magazine on earth. I believe I have two left. So um, get your addresses in right away. Um, I'm literally going to just first come first serve. Going to send the last two out, and uh, and that will be MPC Volume Zero, and they'll be over with. So thank you so much to those who have sent in their addresses. Uh, they're off, and they should be on the way. Some of you live in very very distant places. Um, to give you trolls. Um, that might be four to 19 weeks before that arrives, um, but it will arrive. Ray. Right. Oh, gosh, I've got to get my address, and I'm, uh, I have to admit I'm a little bit behind. I just finished uh, episode five of you guys, and I know there's been lots of great content since then. But, uh, oh, I did wow, see a, so you, I haven't did... even, you haven't even heard that MPC came out. No, I, I saw a little bit on Twitter. I'm like, ooh, that looks really, really neat, but uh, I have to uh, so. <laughs> Uh, whether or not I'm included, I will be sending out my address for sure. So oh, we'll, we'll reserve yes, one for you. Ah, thank you very much. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Looks you great. Betcha. All right. Well, uh, Mr. Olson, have you uh, had the time to play much of anything in the past couple of weeks? Can you tell us about whatever you might have been playing? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. And it's actually going to be uh, uh, eerily similar to what we discussed. But I um, have not had too much occasion to play very many DOS games. But... Uh, I have been playing some early uh, 1980s flight simulators, actually on both the DOS platform and actually on the uh, Atari 8-bit platform for oh, wow. an, up, an upcoming project that uh, hopefully will be uh, um, taking some sort of uh, turn to where something gets gets out uh, here fairly soon. So we're talking about um, things like Hellcat Ace and... Uh, MIG Alley Ace, F-15 Strike Eagle, the first one. Um, wow. And uh, and some of those. And actually, um, I, I, I know it's one of the reasons I love this podcast so much is you guys are not, uh, um, it's, it's clear it's mostly kind of PC-centered, but, you know, talk about the TRS-80 and some of the other machines that not held to uh, just one platform, uh, which is, you know, certainly the, I mean, DOS is where it's at, of course, but uh, it is nice to uh, to be have a little bit of freedom and not worry about the uh, the dreaded not DOS hashtag being uh, uh, smacked upon the, uh, you know, all the uh, unlucky folks out there, myself included. So, mm -hmm. um, but um, one that I really need to mention, which is just, I, I cannot believe how 
how good it was back in 1986. It's a game called Super Huey, which is actually a okay. Commodore 64 port. And I don't think it made too much noise. It was by a company called Cosmi, C-O-S-M-I. And it's on various, I think it's on Atari Mania and, you know, various abandonware sites. It's, you know, long, long gone. But uh, I actually found the guy that did the Atari port. And uh, he uh, lives in Hawaii. And he's still, I think, kind of a, a freelance programmer. But this was Amazing. just, I, I, and I'm not a big helicopter sim guy. I, I'm just not. I, I said that in Anatoly's podcast. And it's just, there are definitely some great ones out there. Um, the uh, the one with the voxels that names is oh Comanche Maximum Overkill is a great oh, one. Oh yeah, I love that. One. Uh, That's the only one maybe. I like. And then going back, there's a, there's a great EA title called, and I think we talked about this one too. LHX LHX Attack Chopper. Man, we just yeah. we played that forever. So it, it's not that I I don't I, I just am uh, against helicopter sims, but it just kind of wasn't um, where I looked. And then also it's it's darn hard to simulate uh, collective and everything else. Well, um, this. Super Huey game. I remember getting it um, and, and playing it growing up. Uh, so it's you know the Atari 8-bit joystick, just uh, very very simple, one button and just the you know the kind of analog where you get eight directions and it you know it pulls and, and finds those out. Well, the genius of it is the collective is if you hold the button down. So you hold the trigger button down, and that's how you do some of the uh, some of the other stuff, whether it's like rotor speed or anything else. And it didn't hit me back then, but now looking back, I mean, what a brilliant, amazing kind of uh, control mechanism or, or style. And uh, I mean, it, this this game was also impossible without a manual. You have a, a deal where you have to type in three digit codes into the flight computer, and it loads up. So you, you say what you want to do. I want to take an instructional flight. So you type INS and then the computer shuts off and then you have to like turn the batteries on and repower it on. So um, I don't want to go too much into it because, uh, you know, it's, I don't uh, probably hardly anyone's played it. But um, this notion this is of being a amount of detail in an yeah. Atari game. I, really? I mean, and, and seriously, the constraints back then. So you've got, you know, 48K and uh, a super low density, very slow disk drive and, uh, you know, and just everything from like displayless interrupts to everything to get all this onto the screen and it's fluid. Uh, the cockpit is, is really well done. And I mean, we're at the end of the day, we're still looking at probably, uh, I'd have to pull it out and have it in front of me, but maybe 160 by 96 by eight colors, you know, but wow. even with that, it's, it kind of doesn't matter. So the outside scenery isn't anything, anything special, but just that, that you can start up from a completely dark cockpit or flight deck and, go through this series, you really feel like, wow, if I were going to go steal a Huey, this is what I, it, it makes you think of when they do it in, uh, in Star Trek, when Sulu jumps in, he's like, I haven't flown one of these in a long time, but uh, it was just so incredible, and uh, so that has just been a, a real gem, but I've, so I've been kind of going back through the ones that, uh, actually, I mentioned quite a few of them on Anatoly, so Solo Flight and the Micropose oh, Suite. Solo Flight, of, I've got a, that's yeah. a micro, that, that was an early Micropose uh, game by, um, What's his name, wasn't it? Sid Meier. Sid, Sid, Sid Meier, Meier, yeah. Really? As a matter of fact, um, the history of Micropose is really, really interesting. We're talking, you know, early 80s, and he got with uh, got together with Major Bill Staley. Steely? Right. I, think I always right. get that wrong. Steely, yeah. And, and they they kind of, they were, I mean, I don't I don't know, and maybe there were, there were other folks involved, but Sid Meier basically, even before he started putting his name actually in front of everything, similar to how Microsoft did it, 
Um, they were the, the, the engine behind almost everything Micropost did back then. And uh, right. Solo Flight, for sure. I don't know if Bill was involved with that one, but Bill certainly was involved in F-15 Strike Eagle and, and the military stuff going forward. But, uh, boy, I mean, I, I, I've said it, uh, you know, I, I think elsewhere, but Solo Flight is what introduced me to the concept of what they call station-to-station navigation or navigating just by reference to uh, ground-based radio stations called VORs, which are... Oh, right, um, right, right. Which are kind I of... I it had uh, VOR support in it. That was really yeah. nuts uh, and, in, in a game that old. I think it's like it just, 85 or 84. Yeah, just really, really amazing. And uh, I remember when we got it figured out, my dad and I, we went, you know, just no reference to the outside. And it was weird, too, because you actually looked at you saw your airplane so it was an odd almost like chase plane type view so it wasn't even just you had a cockpit and instruments but it was kind of strange where you actually could see the airplane uh i don't remember if you could toggle it to where you could turn that off but so it was an odd kind of spot in reality where you were looking at your plane kind of reacting but if you were in the clouds you didn't see it so that would be you know more similar to you know maybe a modern day flight sim where you just only navigating by instruments. And then I remember finding, uh, you know, going from somewhere to Wichita, Kansas, and just by VORs, oh, man, there's the airport. How cool is that? Just remember being <laughs> just blown away by how neat that was. So then many years later, I was able to actually learn uh, the finer points of uh, VOR navigation in, in class and, and everything else. But uh, so, yeah, so that's what I've been Very playing. Cool. Uh, cool. I've also been uh, uh, trying to, yeah, I've got it uh, installed, and I, I just I got through like the first few minutes, and just really, really. I, hopefully, I can mention this. I don't know, maybe I'm not supposed to, but the uh, um, there's a Wajidai game that's uh, I think close to being done. It's a Techno Babylon, and you know, I think I think it's open. Yeah. I think you can go be a join the forums and be a beta tester. But yeah. I've looked a little bit of that, and uh, wow, that just looks phenomenal. So I, I played just a few minutes of that, and then uh, these uh, these old flight sims in both DOS and uh, on the Atari platform, and that is pretty much it. I haven't uh, been able to to really uh, kind of get out and play too much else, but that's that's what I'm I've been I'm really doing. excited about um, Techno Babylon because that, I, I'm not sure if our listeners, I'm sure most of our listeners know this, but not everyone. Um, that was originally released as a freeware, I believe it was a one-room, one-week uh, title from 2009 or something. Oh, really? Um, oh, man, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. My gosh. Yeah. That's yeah, great. it was. Uh, it was. It started off in Oro, I think, or Mags, or one of the competitions that uh, the Adventure Game Studio forums holds. And what happened was they they I, I played the first basically escape the room puzzle, and it was quite good. I was I was impressed. It was a nice little story. It was you could finish it in about ten minutes or less. Um, and then the developer, whom I don't know their name. Uh, started to add more and more rooms to this, more and more sequels, and I think it got to the point where there was like three or four chapters in this game all of a sudden. And, you know, this took several years, and I think that's when Dave kind of latched onto it and said, wow, you know, what if we funded this and um, got Ben to repaint? I think Ben's doing all of the artwork for the entire game. Yeah, I I believe so. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and and then expanded into like a full-length, Wajidai title, which kind of blew my mind. I didn't realize kind of that's how things go sometimes. So that was, uh, I'm really excited to see that because the original artwork is very, very good, or, well, very passable, um, you know, for AGS artwork. But um, I, I sus- have the suspicion that Ben's been burning his brain out for the last year or two, uh, <laughs> re- repainting every single scene. So I think it's going to be pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. I, I oh, yeah. um yeah, for sure. Gosh, it looks. Good. I didn't know it. It had that history. I think. I, I hope I don't get this wrong. So I think it's Technocrat 
software, and I think the main developer is James Dearden. I think. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Ooh, if right. I if I got that name right, it's close. If that, hopefully that's uh, that's uh, that's pretty close. But I think that's who it is. So yeah, I just it looks phenomenal. I mean, anything anything in that kind of um, cyberpunk neon realm. I mean, that's you know, you've got me, no problem. I'll, here's here's my money. I'll, I'll I'll definitely. But with all the people that are involved, and certainly Ben in particular, I'm just like, all right, sign me up. I'm I'm there. What what oh, yeah. can I do? So yes, indeed. Awesome. So, yeah. Hmm. So what have you been playing, Brian? All right, what have I been playing? I um, I have uh, the the great shame to admit that I have not made it all the way through Loom in my many many years of adventure gaming. <laughs> I uh, tried picking it up again. Well, I I succeeded in picking it up again. I own it on GOG, but I keep hearing from various sources on Twitter that the version that you really want is the EGA version. Yeah, whereas... absolutely. Oh no, I've got it on Steam, not on GOG. And on both on both Steam and GOG, the VGA version is the only one that's available. For whatever reason, the EGA right. one is just not accessible for purchase. And so, I accessed it not not by purchase, but by hook and or crook. And uh, it's really pretty, really, really pretty. And I, I'm really taken aback by how the game just seems to take its time. Like it starts off with this overture right. where you just listen to music for a while and. Uh, I, I just like took my hands off the controls and just kind of absorbed it and was just kind of there. And that's something I quite appreciate in this world of, you know, cutscenes being as abbreviated as they all as they are as possible already and still wanting to skip them. It's nice to play something at uh, such a leisurely pace. So that's actually I'm... interesting. That's an interesting thought. I, I I hadn't really noticed that before, but if you remember last week I was talking about a Brian Moriarty game called Trinity. Yeah. Um, and I think I mentioned there, too, that the first 15 minutes of it, it, the pace is very, very slow and leisurely. He just kind of lets you wander around, lets you experience the world. There's no puzzles, well, or there are very few puzzles in the first bit. And I wonder if that's maybe a kind of Brian Moriarty trademark where everyone else kind of wants to throw you right into the action. Um, he just kind of, uh, he kind of lets you, lets you kind of absorb the local color for a little while. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, uh, one uh, one uh, epithet that uh, Ben Chandler likes to repeat on the Blue Cup Tool podcast. Hi, Ben, and hi, Francisco. Um, he likes to reinforce the fact that exploration itself is a form of gameplay, and it's something that yeah. deserves not to be overlooked. It's something that's rewarding and satisfying and just relaxing and enjoyable, and uh, it's something that uh, is seen not often enough. And yeah, it's especially absolutely. interesting with Loom. Mantra. Yeah, it's especially interesting with Loom because there is very little text. They kind of let the graphics speak for themselves, and that uh, it, it's it's nice. It's nice. You don't feel compelled like you're uh, missing something that you forgot to click on something. So far, I mean, I'm only about twenty minutes in, but right. I I really uh, so would like to finish this. So you did manage to get the EGA version? Yeah, I found the EGA. I just Googled oh, EGA good. Loom, and there it was. It's like a one megabyte download. Yeah, I, I, I think in many ways it's... Uh, Anatoly and everyone else has talked this to death, but honestly, if anybody... I, I was not a believer because my first experience with Loom was also the 256 VGA. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I'll... Actually, I'm excited to talk about that. I'll get to talk about that today with our main topic. Um, but yes, the EGA version is most definitely superior, if only because the dithered artwork is just stunning to see, kind of just to see what they managed to pull off in 16 colors. Mm-hmm. No, I, yeah, I, cool. I, I agree with that. Yeah, Loom's a great one. Uh, kind of a funny bit. I, um, 
I didn't actually play it until I encountered that great spot in Space Quest Four where you go through the bargain bin of software. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it was it was actually um, boom. I think, yeah, yep. boom. I, and I went, what the heck? And you know, maybe I was maybe a little bit aware of it or something like that. And I read the description. I went, well, at the very least, this sounds like. Uh, the real version sounds like a game I'd want to play. So um, <laughs> I, I, I just I kind of missed it when it came out. But um, I also played the Turn uh, 56 VGA version first. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I've grown to appreciate the, you know, how great, you know, EGR it was in the, you know, kind of the uh, SCI Zero days and whatnot. But um, I will absolutely agree that the, uh, the EGA version is where it's at. And actually, I, I can't believe it. I, I don't follow him on Twitter. I should probably do that. Sorry, Brian Moriarty, if you're listening, I will follow you after we're done here. But uh, he actually said, um, buy the, or, you know, purchase the, you know, the version that just came out or was just released, but play the EGA version. So it was kind of a, oh, that's you know, Find a friend who has it, or something like that. But uh, I, somebody, cool. I don't know if maybe, maybe it was Anatoly that actually retweeted that. But um, but the really odd thing, and I, I'm kind of a newcomer to both GOG and Steam, um, to where I just you know I have I have stuff from from way back on floppy disks, or you know kind of you know oddly placed here and there. But they did a release of Zach McCracken, which I didn't play, but it's it's by a great fantastic guy named David Fox, who's one of the founding members of LucasArts. And right. the Zach McCracken release apparently has all sorts of, it has the EGA version, it has like the FM Towns music, it has all this stuff, and it's like, what, you know, everyone's oh, going, wow. why didn't they, when the designer of the game says, you know, yes, the EGA version is, is the director's cut, or that's the one you should play, why they didn't do it? It's just kind of funny how that uh, sometimes doesn't work out like that. You know there will be people who just whether they're you know morally against it or just don't know, we'll just get whatever versions on GOG or Steam. That's the one they'll play. It's kind of a shame. So, yeah, it really yeah, is. I'm kind of under the yeah. impression, having listened to GOG talk about this a little bit, that licensing of these multi-decades-old properties is a really harrowing, sure. difficult thing, yeah. and sometimes they can they can uh, secure some rights but not others, and sometimes that means they can only release one version or they can't release it whatsoever. So I'd, I'd yeah, love to see that. Yeah. Maybe they had a different artist do the EGA art than did the VGA could, art, for example. Be, for sure, yeah. I just don't know. But uh, so, oh, and quite, they, oh, and it's awesome that uh, yeah. Speaking of Zach McCracken, the FM Towns that was a Japanese computer, yeah, wasn't it? Was. it? Yeah, so I that's think so. really amazing, and that was like a high res, really beautiful multimedia machine as well. So it's super cool. Yeah. That's a pretty like obscure version that didn't make it anywhere outside Japan. So it's great that they yeah, it's too bad that. because um, there, there's a couple of companies that released some amazing FM Town games. Uh, Origin Systems actually. Um, really. Yeah, they put out. Uh, I think it's Ultima Five or Ultima Six. You know, for anybody who's... Uh, we don't talk about the Ultima series too much on this podcast. I'd love to someday. Um, the Ultima 5 or Ultima 6, which uses one, one of old, Origin's older engines, kind of the top-down, semi, semi-three-quarter isometric view. I don't even know what to call it. It's a very strange viewpoint, but anybody will recognize it. It's 16 color. It usually looks a little rough. Sometimes it's 256. They actually have a full voice... I think it's a fully voiced version of Ultima 5 or Ultima 6 in Japanese. No kidding. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. It's... So I would love to get my hands on an FM Town someday because, uh, yeah, I, I've always been curious about their their full talkie edition games. Oh, no kidding. But I think if you're going to get your hands on the actual machine, then you have to you have a whole language to learn. 
<laughs> yeah, this that's is true. true. Yeah. So, cool. so that's Loom. Oh, and I'm playing Loom in the Scum VM emulator, and I oh, I can't remember the name of it. I'll definitely stick this in the show notes. There is some free open source um, emulator for the Roland M32 sound card. Nice. Yes. And so it's on SourceForge. You can get these ROM files, which are very close, apparently, to the MT32 original Roland sound uh, sound uh, uh, synthesizers. Yeah. Uh, so it and, sounds and, really beautiful like that. And I think if I'm if I'm not correct, um, if I'm not incorrect, um, ScumVM supports the SysX um, commands, which are um, I don't know what to call them. Um, they're little little displays. Have either of you ever owned an MT32, the real hardware? Yes. No. Yes, indeed. Oh, really? Uh, very yeah, good. they're got fantastic. On, got one on eBay a while back. I didn't have one back in the day, but I have one now. So, yeah. Yeah, they're, they they display these little messages before, when they're loading the patch banks. And right. um, the LCD, but I think ScumVM, if you've got the ROM files for the Roland, it'll actually show them on screen. And some of them are pretty funny, especially in the Space Quest series. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, yeah. Yep. I, I think you're right. You get a little, it gives you like a little picture of the front panel and insert. So I, yeah, exactly. All the other. Oh, yeah. 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 R- really cute. Pretty, yeah. Good deal. Oh, that's super cool. So, the, yeah, that's that's something I sadly miss out on using the emulator. I really ought to pick up an MT32. They're about a hundred bucks or so, and I think they need a. Do they need a MIDI port or a serial port or something that modern machines don't even have? Uh, actually, um, you can use um, uh, can, a MIDI to USB to adapter. I believe that's what I do. Oh, I own one of those actually because yeah. I got. I was offered a synthesizer for free. I can't remember which one it is now. Some Roland synthesizer. It's like this great big flat pizza box rack mount thing, wow. which apparently it only uh, supports uh, bass MIDI. It doesn't do extended general MIDI, so oh, wow. it only has like 30 instruments or something, and it, anything, any instrument it doesn't know, it just plays it as a piano, so sure. Any, sure. anything but the very oldest MIDI-compliant games right. sound really stupid. I gotta yeah, get rid of this thing. It, wasn't, it, it was hardly worth the free price <laughs> that uh, <laughs> I acquired it for, but it, I spent 50 bucks on this MIDI to USB cable that I ought to put to good, to, good use. So oh, yeah, a perfect use of the MP32, or if you can afford an SEC1 or SE55, um, those, those, are, those are godly. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the sound canvas, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very quickly then, I guess, one of the other games I played this week, which I got for my wife for her birthday, and I ended up playing it, I think, more than she played it. That's like the Homer buying a bowling ball for March kind of a present, <laughs> isn't it? Is Call of Duty Advanced Warfare. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, so I've I've been a pretty nice. big fan of Call of Duty games. Um, the, the very first one and the second one I absolutely adore. And the Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare one was really good as well. And they've gone downhill little by little since that one to the right. point where I just... It, it was like, I don't know, this game is like 48 gigabytes or something. It's crazy <laughs> humongous. And I got about an hour and a half in or so and I just uninstalled it. It's oh really? Probably the it's probably the best looking thing I've ever seen on a computer. The sound is incredible. The people look the most lifelike, like any other, than, more than any other game I've ever seen. But I just don't care. I just don't care at all. Sure. It, oh, that's it, too bad. So, is, do they even attempt to have a story, or is it just throw you into battle and see? To, oh to yeah, kind of thing. well there's always a story you know, bad guys, one big super villain Mr. Burns with his huge magnifying or sun blocking thing, that's basically the plot of every single one of these games, every single time um, oh, that's they, too bad. one kind of cool thing is that they have the actor Kevin Spacey in this one and they actually have his likeness oh, that's in the game the one too that was airing on TV they had commercials on TV for this one I didn't realize that I'm was sure. the Call of Duty 
So it's pretty uncanny. Oh, okay. Between like the voice and the lip sync and the motion capture and the likeness, it's very uncanny to see the man right there. That, that's really neat. And you're getting to walk around him and look at the back of his head while he's talking and jumping up and down while he's <laughs> wow. doing this serious exposition. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad you do that. I'm glad you do that in games too. I can't stand it. Um, if they if they don't wrestle control around me, I always stand behind them and try to like walk through their body or push yep. them or move them. Oh, sure. Stand on their head or something. My wife read an article, actually, about uh, massively multiplayer online games saying that men are much more likely than women. Men players are much more likely than women players to jump around and to just be rambunctious when something serious or something is supposed to be happening. You're much more likely to see a man bouncing around the the landscape than a woman. So I guess I'm I'm, uh, predisposed with my genes, with my chromosomes. (laughs) Um... The only other thing that I put just very little time into is Elder Scrolls Online, which is oh, a massively multiplayer game. And I had zero interest in this game whatsoever for the longest time. It looked like a WoW clone to me, and it really is for the most part. But um, So I bought it on sale a few months ago when it was half price on Steam just to try it for the month because I had nothing right. better to do. And I, I enjoyed it a pretty fair amount, but it wasn't worth a subscription price to me, so I just let it uh, kind of die on the vine. But... Um, uh-huh. Now they have just switched their pricing model from a subscription-based one to a Guild Wars-style one where you buy the box and you don't have to play for pay for a oh, multiplayer really? subscription. Good deal. Mo- wow. A monthly subscription. So that's pretty good. So I already own the box. So I uh, put another couple of hours or so into it, and this is on my newly upgraded computer. It's really, really beautiful. And Oh, really? The only thing that is quite unique so far about this game is that it's really nice to play in first person. If you zoom in all the way, then... Uh, just like in the single-player yeah, Elder Scrolls games, you play them first-person. That's the only way I ever play any Elder Scrolls game. So you can you can see your hands, and they do meaningful things. I'm trying with this archer character now, so you see yourself plucking the bow and all of that kind of stuff. But also when you interact with uh, w- with something in the world, which I usually summarize in a massively multiplayer game as click the shiny. Just click yeah. whatever the, <laughs> the glowing thing is, and that's how you're doing whatever. So your hands do these somewhat meaningful approximations of whatever it is they're supposed to be doing as you interact with these objects and it has a variety of animations in first person that are are appropriate for whatever you're supposed to be doing so that's a really nice way to suspend disbelief so i'll put a little bit more time into it so hopefully my wife can be convinced to get this too it's like 70 bucks canadian or something right now it's not going to go on sale oh, for wow. quite some time i'm sure but for a, a, a massively multiplayer game you don't have to pay a subscription for which i think is a dwindling practice these days anyway i guess that's not so horrible yeah, that's not bad. I I played um, Elder Scrolls Online when it was in beta um, over a year ago. I guess must must have been two years ago now. Um, I think so. Yeah, and does it still have that really goofy kind of intro quest where um, you you kind of spawn in the middle of this underground dungeon or something? And then, yeah, the land of the dead thing. Yeah, it's really funny because I, I thought it was like what you know I didn't I didn't it just got me off on the wrong foot as soon as I spawned. Um, I spawned with 50 other people at the same time, and I was almost like, like I don't know, like a Kentucky Derby of MMOs. All of a sudden, it's like, ends are off, and then everyone starts running in this like huge stampede towards the first quest character. <laughs> and, you know, I'm standing with 50 people, click, 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 click through the questing as fast as I can so I can get to the damn exit and start the game. Mm. Um, so it is still like that. They still have that quest line, although I did appreciate that because I played it a few months prior. Um, right. After you've done it once, you're given the option to skip that part entirely on subsequent oh, characters. Perfect. That's something most games don't let you do, so I sure do appreciate that. <laughs> um, 
And I guess because I played it the very day that they transitioned to this new pricing model, it was probably more crowded than it's been for quite some time. But it wasn't totally unpleasant. I mean, there is still the fact of you and 63 other chosen ones running around (laughs) talking to the same people in the same order. Stampede is a good way to put it. So I think it'll normalize a little bit as, as there's more of a distribution of characters of different levels. Cool. Excellent. Yeah, but it, those games always, the Elder, Elder Scrolls always kind of put you in some dreary dungeon before you, uh, yeah, uh, before your eyes have to adjust to the glorious splendor of the outdoors. So that's sort of their style, but I, it, it does get a little off-putting. That, that yeah, that's definitely an Elder Scrolls style uh, in, introduction. I, I don't remember if Arena started off that way, but I think Daggerfall and Morrowind and everything after that starts in a dungeon cell. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, actually, Skyrim doesn't. Skyrim, you start like oh. on a, you're, you're you're on your way to a done. No, you're on your way to your execution. So it's you're on your way to your execution. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's true. There you go. But you anyway, still, you still do end up being kind of underground and then emerge out into the world uh, after the execution sequence. Yeah, that's done, right. You run indoors kind of to escape dragons or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I've been up to. How about you, Chris? What have you been playing this week? Um, you know what? I've been really, really busy with work this week, so I haven't caught up to a whole lot. I've continued my love-slash-like-slash-hate relationship with Broken Sword. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I, I, keep, I feel like I keep beating this game up. Um, I want to like it, but I'm realizing that um, it's got so much going for it, but it also has a lot going against it, um, in my view. Um, one of the things I find is the... The storyline, it keeps me, it, it definitely keeps me wa- wanting to find out more and more and more. Um, you know, the whole unpacking of the, uh, the secret of the uh, temp- Knights Templar. Um, but basically the whole game, and I, I know this is an asinine comment because it basically applies to every adventure game ever, but the whole game is organized around um, gating you through the experience. So basically, yeah, you want to find out more about the Templars? You better find a way to unlock that door. Sure. And and the whole game is a series of un, un, unlockable doors, and um, I I just tire of it. The puzzles are a little bit silly. Um, I I basically just sit back, watch my girlfriend play it, and kind of enjoy the story and get her to wave at me whenever there's like a, a plot point coming up. <laughs> um, oh, one of the one of the best parts of the game, though. Uh, it was annoying, but I actually enjoyed it. Was watching George get murdered over and over and over again. There's a sequence <laughs> where um, you you basically are being held at gunpoint on a cliffside. Do you guys remember this? Oh yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, you basically have to answer a, a series of dialogue <laughs> questions, uh, or this guy will shoot you in the face. Uh, <laughs> it's actually a pretty gruesome death. He basically <laughs> blows you away. You fly off the cliffside, and you know vultures, you know like stand over your body. And uh, we had to do that sequence five or six times in a row um, because we couldn't figure out what the hell you need to say in order to do this right. And it's very sensitive to, it's basically one of those completely linear logic puzzles where um, I think what you have to do to solve the puzzle is um, you have to do something to this guy so you can jump off the cliff on your own and land in the Jeep, Indiana Jones style. Um, But... I actually really enjoyed watching George die over and over and over because it's pretty grisly, you know, a grisly way to end a puzzle, a very Sierra-like kind of way of doing it. Um, yeah. So I, I, I really want to like Broken Sword. There's, there's something so over the top and ridiculous about it, but I keep coming back to the same problems, which is 
item inventory puzzles are not my thing, and I, I find them very silly. Um, I think they're they're more mostly driven by programming limitations and not by story needs, which I, I find really strange in a game that's completely completely organized around stories. So, mm-hmm. um, okay, so I should stop complaining. Um, Ultima Seven has been absolutely amazing. Um, Oh, you're thing, still playing that on your uh, on your PSP? Yes, the, my girlfriend's been kind of working her way through it, and I've been following along, and and it's just incredible to watch. You know, I'm backseat driving basically, so I get to see all of this incredible programming uh, under the hood that I I would have never thought about before. Um, did I mention NPC schedules uh, last week? I can't remember. Oh, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, they have their, their daily routines and all. Yeah, they have the daily routines. And the one thing I love about this game is there's so much care that goes into these routines. I mean, a typical Skyrim routine is, you know, you see NPC spawns in front of their bed. He goes, okay, I guess I should get to work now. And then he, you know, walks outside, does, makes a beeline for his field, starts digging in the field, and he's there for about five hours. Then he goes back inside. It's like, okay, I guess it's time for me to sit in front of the table now and not eat something. And then, you know, it's kind of these really bizarre schedules, and every NPC in the world follows the same basic schedule. Um, one thing I love about Ultima 7 is it seems like each NPC, without fail, has a schedule tuned to express their personality, which I really, really love. Hmm. Um, for instance, the baker gets up extra early because he starts baking at about 4 or 5 in the morning when the whole rest of the city is asleep, um, which I find really cool. And he also finishes earlier than all the other workers because, you know, the bakery basically closes up, I think, at 5 p.m. instead of 6 or 7 or 8. Um, the, the, I love that the barmaids at the inn sleep in until 10 or 11 o'clock. Um, and just, just little touches like that. Um, I noticed that there was one, in particular, there was one... Um, um, NPC, I think she was a, a, a seamstress. She got extra early in the morning to go start her weaving. And I followed, you know, we followed her down through Britain and she goes inside. It, it's dark outside because it's, you know, five o'clock in the morning. So she goes and turns on a lamp and she goes, ah, now it is better. I can finally work. And, you know, and then all of a sudden when the lights come up outside, the sun comes out, she walks over and shuts off the lamp and goes, that's better. Um, you know, it's just, just little kind of touches like that, I think, wow, you know, that's amazing. Or um, there's an NPC that works inside of Lord British's nursery, and the whole uh, kind of a B-plot in the game is all about um, um, the kind of class, the, under, the, the basically unspoken class system that exists in Britannia. And everyone denies, all the rich people denies that it exists. All the poor people know that, you know, that's basically a class-based system. And all of the people, all of the people who are... Um, uh, low class who work for Lord British, they get up extra early. They get up at 6 a.m. They go to work by 7 a.m. They work the whole 12-hour shift and they don't stop for lunch. Um, and they don't. They, they basically don't get home until 9 p.m. Meanwhile, Lord British is like, "Oh, I guess I should sit on my throne for a while." And he gets, you know, 45 minutes on the throne. Well, I guess it's time for a walk out in the courtyard. And he goes and strolls around his courtyard. And meanwhile, you know, he has, you know, uh, his his assistants following him around and all of this stuff. Or he has a three-hour lunch. Um, it just does an amazing job of expressing all of those things in in a very subtle way that I think the player can really pick up on if they if they just pay attention to basic things like where's this NPC standing? Are they inside the dining room today or are they out in the courtyard? So I just, I just love that stuff. It's a 
little attention to detail makes a world breathe. So I love that's it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, so you don't see that too often. I think I was telling my girlfriend, um, um, companies like uh, Bioware um, who who thrive on storytelling, um, I think really have missed out on the under the hood kind of stuff that happens in these game engines that actually express just as much as direct dialogue can. So um, I was basically... Yeah, the Bioware games are a little more streamlined, aren't they? Like their NPCs are largely just kind of, you know, they're they're standing there waiting for you to acknowledge them. Exactly. As far as I know, there's not a single NPC schedule in in a Bioware game. They basically just stand around or they're sitting down inside of a bar waiting for you to, like, excuse me, um, may I solve one of your many problems today kind of quests? Yeah. Yeah, so they don't really have an open world. They just sort of have open areas that you can kind of, you know, solve those problems in whatever order you want, more or less, or you can ignore them or do them as you please. Yeah. But uh, it's I, not I, really an environment. It's not like a natural yeah. kind of a thing. Absolutely. It's interesting that, you know, people have been saying, oh, you know, Dragon Age Inquisition's this amazing game, and I don't want to talk it down or anything. My girlfriend worked on it. Um, but uh, it's interesting to me. I was watching a friend of ours play it through, uh, for a few hours, and it was really interesting to me that um, they've stripped away a lot of the underlying role-playing elements that have been around for 25 years, and are, which are really good parts of the genre. Um, mm-hmm, like, they do do that. Yeah, they've stripped it down to basically a combat and dialogue system, um, which I know, you know really, really appeals to players, but I think they're also losing that. They call it, I can't believe that they called DAI an open-world game. Um, I don't think it's open world at all. I think it's actually just a series of rooms that are linked together in a, a big matrix. So, um, mm. y- yeah, anyway, I, shouldn't, I don't want to complain about it, but it was interesting to me that, you know, Ultima 7 pulled off something that games are struggling to rediscover now. Yeah, well, I don't think every game needs to be an open world game with all the detail. It's wonderful when yeah. you see it, but it's good for games to have focus as well, I suppose. It's the right solution for yeah. the right problem. Yeah, exactly, and Agreed. I think, and I also think an Ultima Seven game would be a hard sell these days. Um, I think people would be very overwhelmed uh, just by the amount of uh, I don't know what to call it. It's a game. It's a game that's a hundred percent side quest, and you accidentally solve the main quest along the way. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's that's all I've been really playing or looking at. Um, I got to see. Oh, this is pretty amazing. Um, I got to see... Uh, oh, sorry, I, I missed one game. I got to see uh, Fred, Frederick Pohl's Gateway. Have you guys ever heard of this game? No. no. Oh, uh, Gateway, maybe. It's maybe. absolutely stunning. Um, the, uh, Legend Entertainment was one of those kind of underdog uh, text adventure companies back in the 90s. You guys familiar with Legend at all? They had... Yeah, um, sure. Yeah, they, they, had, uh, they had one that I played when I was younger called... Um, oh, shit. Um, Eric the Unready, which I thought was one of the funniest oh, games I've yeah. ever played. Oh, right. yeah, right. I played that as well. That's a great one. Hilarious. That was one with a weird yeah, interface, wasn't yeah. it? Where it was like mostly a text adventure, but it also had like a, a, a graphical window? A graphics window. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's right. And <laughs> I thought it was just like fantastic. And, and Fred and Pole's Gateway is identical, same engine. Uh, amazing um, SVGA 256 graphics, which are just stunning. Uh, uh, to look at, but it's a it's really an interesting experience. So I, I, I heard about it from Dave Gilbert from Lagedi talking about it, and um, it's it's an absolutely amazing amazing uh, game, and I'm really impressed by it. So um, I won't say much about it, but otherwise, it's an amazing novel, and the game looks just absolutely stunning too. So 
Um, I'd rather get to our main topic because we we are talking about something very near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. All right, well, why don't we go ahead and do that? Our topic for this week is going to be early CD-ROM games. And I know that this is a topic that's going to spill out into subsequent weeks, and so I think perhaps considering our uh, esteemed guest's schedule, perhaps we should allow him to rifle off his list, and then Chris, you and I can uh, mention some of our favorites uh, next week. Absolutely. Perfect. I know we're going to have a lot of overlap, too. I'm I'm positive. All right, so Chris Olson, why don't you go right ahead with your first selection? Perfect. Well, the... uh... I, I, I don't have these in really any particular order, but, and, uh, but the first one I'm going to mention, which I know is uh, a little bit controversial and evokes some uh, hatred and uh, uh, love kind of and everything in between, has to be... Mist or Rebel Assault? Rebel Assault. Um, Yay! Yeah. I love that game. <laughs> I, yeah, Rebel Assault was... Uh, it wasn't my first CD-ROM game, but it was um, probably the most meaningful one in that era. Uh, and I don't really consider myself uh, a humongous Star Wars fan. I'm a big fan. Actually, I, I wrote into, uh, I emailed Joe when he did the UMB cast episode on, on Rebel Assault. But That's right. Uh, this, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure you guys encounter this where, you know, way back then, of course, let's see, that was 93, there was no possible way you could acquire this by any other means than buying it or borrowing it. I mean, it was just, at that point, it was just yes. wasn't feasible, and we've mm-hmm. kind of talked that to death, kind of, you know, that's a story for another podcast, and there have been podcasts on that subject. But, so this was, you know, you had to have the physical media. But I do remember the demo. Do you guys remember the demo? It maybe got packaged. That's what convinced me. Oh, my, oh yeah. That, that demo, that might be the best demo I've ever seen. It was... I never, got to, see a, I never oh. got to see the demo. What, what was it like? So, it was on a bunch of CD-ROM games, yeah, as I recall. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I honestly, I, it's terrible. I can't even remember where. I want to say I saw the demo on a pack-in CD from like Computer Gaming World, which I didn't get very often. But it was one. I think it was one of those type of deals where uh, they had just figured out, you know, oh, CD-ROMs are, are coming out. We're going to throw in, a, you know, a, a, you know, put in a, a CD in a little sleeve. And here, here will be some demos. I also want to say maybe I just bit the bullet and downloaded the demo at twenty four hundred baud. Maybe I did that. Wow. If it did it, it probably took all night. But it That's was. I, I we I, we probably watched that. I, my, my friends and I or just me watched that demo so much before it came out. And in fact, mm-hmm. uh, some of the elements that were there, you know, of course, some of them were cutscenes. And while the they actually of, packed video cutscenes into the demo. They, they oh, just... It was two full levels of the game, as I recall. It was like Holy one crap. one where you're flying through the cannon and canyon, and one when you're fighting a bunch of Tie Fighters. I think. I, I think that's right. And and actually, you know what? There there might have been three. there might have been a couple of versions of because I actually, you know what? I guess it's more appropriate. What I saw was I guess more like a trailer before. Oh, okay. So yeah, okay. that's what it was. So so you know what? That's right. There weren't any gameplay elements. It was just the. Here's you know a little bit of a tease with the uh, you know I, I remember the and it's one of the cutscenes in the in the game where the you know the the, um, the you know the S foils unlock or whatever and yeah, maybe right. you know I, I wish my my memory was better on this but boy that was just I mean it was just amazing never seen anything like it and uh, and you know it was just like all right well whatever it is I'm gonna have to scrape together 
you know, fifty nine ninety five and go get this game. And uh, I know it's 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 oft maligned, and you know, people hate the you know shooter on rails thing and everything else. But this was also for me one of the first uh, kind of titles that had Redbook audio to the point where it was audio that I recognized because it was all you know the John Williams score from the movie interspersed in. A kind of an iMuse like kind of way where it was, you know, it wasn't quite as maybe intelligent as, uh, you know, something like Monkey Island where it would you'd get, you know, two songs playing right. depending on location. But it was very much tuned to the, the scenario and being a huge music buff, especially classical music and whatnot, it was great to hear um, maybe parts that weren't featured prominently in the movie interspersed into, you know, maybe like, you know, you're approaching the, uh, you know, one of the starter stores or whatnot. So, um, I, you know, I just, in, in finding out more about the technical elements and how they managed to do it, I want to say I played it on a single speed CD-ROM. I, it was not a phenomenally great computer and it chugged along, but it actually did okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, Rebel Assault just, uh, just for the, and, and I said this on Joe's show too, but I had always kind of dreamed like, boy, if they could just somehow make a Star Wars game where you could just basically, if you could just do everything that, you know, one of the characters did in the movie, and obviously there would be some, you know, kind of game elements. Can you jump the bridge? Can you, you know, right. pilot the, the Luke speeder through, you know, this or that? But to kind of connect kind of like a hybrid, even though it would be a completely unoriginal story, as a kid I remember thinking, boy, wouldn't that be great? Or in, if you go a little farther, say, jump on a speeder bike and, you know, and go through the forest. How great would that be? So, even though it wasn't yeah. quite that, it was a, a, just a little bit of a glimpse of this is something they, you know, they took something very cinematic and tried to put it into a game. So I, I, I was probably predisposed to just love that game, but uh, very, very good memory. <laughs> so, so that's the, uh, the, the rest of my, my list. That's definitely on there. Of course, Mist is on there as well. I'm just going to run through these and we can chat about whichever ones you want. But uh, well, really, it's my experience with Re- my experience with Rebel Assault was that um, it was the first time that I had actually saw full-screen 320 by 200 video playing off of a CD. Um, sure. Well, that's a good point. You know, like, yeah. that was that was a big deal for me because I had actually, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, uh, a Sega CD, which was, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Sega's attempt at, um, you know, doing uh, full-motion video on a disc. And the thing mm-hmm. is, most of the Sega CD games, at least at first, were all these kind of postage stamp-sized videos in the center of the screen. Um, right, because the CPU was so slow, I think. Exactly, and they couldn't stream it fast enough off the disc. So I think the Sega CD was also single speed, too. Um, so when I saw Rebel Assault for the first time, I think it was playing at a, a place like Computerland or CompuCenter. It was playing on it. Uh, it was just on loop. On, on The intro was on loop on a, game, uh, on a VGA monitor. I was just blown away that you could actually cram in full-screen video in color. Well, that was another thing, too. A lot of some games use black and white to get away with um, sure, uh, pushing sure. less data through the bus. Um, full screen color 320 by 200 was just mind blowing. And for me, I had a double speed CD ROM, which when we got it, I think four speed was already on the way in, so it was mm-hmm. already considered somewhat slow. Um, I couldn't believe that it worked. And I'm actually shocked. I didn't realize that it could even stream off of a single, uh, single speed disc. That's insane. Yeah, I, I might be remembering that wrong, but I'm pretty sure, um, again, it wasn't perfect, but I want to say I'm pretty sure I had it on a, played it on a single speed. But uh, That's amazing. It, oh, yeah. 
But yeah, remembering remembering some details from uh, Joe's Upper Memory Block, Block podcast episode about this, I'm kind of suspecting that the seek time of the laser to skip to a different that's right uh, bit of data that might have been more important than the actual read time. Maybe sure. it was optimized uh, for 150 absolutely. kilobytes a second or whatever. I well, uh, but, you're, I think that's dead right because do you do you remember when you hit those junction points? I'm thinking of the mm-hmm. first mission where you're flying through the canyons. Yeah, um, the forks. Yeah, when you hit the fork, there's this huge pause in the game for like one full second while my disc is like... Right. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And it's funny because it actually reminds me of one thing thing I I wasn't even planning on talking about, but you just reminded me of it. Um, This applies to Myst, but it probably also applies to every game we're going to talk about is they laid the data tracks out in a sequential sequence so that there would be less seeking between each track. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, and it happened in a lot of games back then because they realized, you know, the seek times are so bad that if it would have to seek to the very end of the disk, it might take like a full second to get out there. So, yeah, that's exactly. really funny. Funny that they had manually decided which, <laughs> you know, which, uh, wh- which data should spin from the center outwards, which is insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Good, good point. Um, so yeah, so I've, I've got Rebel Assault, and then uh, and next on the list, of course, we mentioned a little bit is uh, is Mist. Uh, this one is another one that just seems to really polarize people, and I'm kind of neutral on it. I I enjoyed it. I had actually played, and I think you guys mentioned it. Um, I had played Manhole on uh, oh, on yeah. a Mac, um, you know, kind of in the, and I want to say wasn't Manhole. Kind of wasn't that kind of associated with HyperCard or HyperStudio? Is that right? Yes, it was. It was. Okay. I think it was HyperCard. Yeah. HyperCard. Okay. See, I had um, kind of a, a fair amount of HyperCard experience with the 2GS in in '87. We had a 2GS oh, nice. at home, so I was kind of plugged into that a little bit. To where I remember HyperStudio came out, and it was just it was just too much, a little bit too intense for the the 2GS. Unfortunately, if you really wanted to load it up with graphics and sound and everything else, it kind of came to a, a grinding halt. We didn't have a hard drive either, so that certainly would have helped things. But um, oh, wow. but just in, in system memory and you know with a RAM disk and everything, it was still kind of, you know, it had to be really, really short sound clips or you know, low-res pictures or whatnot. But uh, mm. so I, I kind of felt like, um, and, and again, I don't, I don't remember exactly, uh, I think maybe the, the school had Max, so we, we had someone had manhole there and we looked at it, and I thought it was just kind of neat how it was, you weren't really bound by anything. So um, mm-hmm. I didn't really come into Mist with a whole lot of uh, kind of expectations or, oh, this is going to be great. But um, for, as a completely wannabe game developer, maybe one day, you know, long in the future I could do something, I am, uh, I was, and still I'm kind of taken by the fact that this is basically if, you know, you've got all these pre-rendered things and it's, that's it. I mean, you've got uh, kind of like, uh, you know, if I were to go out and take a bunch of photographs and just say, all right, this is it, I'm not going to have walkable areas or, or anything like that. That's all you have, and then you have kind of a, right. a, a method to where you can kind of go up, down, left, right, um, and just kind of go from place to place without seeing a representation of your character, or, or certainly not very often. That's intriguing, mm. absent any kind of commentary on the game. I, I liked Myst. It was... Um, it was something about these, these old CD-ROM games. Seventh Guest was the same way, where they were pretty tough, um, my gosh! Uh, yeah, I, so I got most of the way oh, through this, but were I, brutal. they were really difficult, and not not yeah, the, they're obtuse. The, 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 they're just not not well defined. And, and the seventh guess, they seemed to get harder and harder. Or there were just a couple of real humdingers in there that uh, 
you know, it took just ages and ages to do, and this is before, you know, walkthroughs in the internet. And I remember a, a friend of mine, I'm getting off topic a little bit, actually put a video camera behind himself and filmed himself solving the microscope puzzle in seventh guest so he knew <laughs> could show it to people or how, to, knew how to do it and i uh, hated that puzzle and uh that that gentleman also named chris kind of amazing actually went on to work for microsoft <laughs> and is uh you know has you know, knows more about computers and programming than i will ever hope to know probably in in one day kind of thing so he was kind of had the mind for it but um but missed but they were just a few puzzles where it was uh, i felt happy to get as far as i did um, still enjoyed it. I didn't really play any of the sequels. My wife was a, a big fan of uh, the first Mist, and I think she played, you know, some of the Riven and whatnot. But beyond the first one, I, I really didn't uh, didn't get into. It. I didn't, but I, I didn't hate it. I enjoyed it, but there was definitely a very lonely sense. That same thing where the the interface was intriguing, and certainly the graphics really really great. Um, it was uh, it was you know you kind of felt like you were well you kind of were all by yourself but it was uh, it was tough to really connect to where if there had been a little bit more interaction maybe it would have you know really kind of pulled me forward to say all right I'm going to finish this game but uh, um, I yeah kinda... well the, sto- the the story is very loosely kind of integrated into the game you know you yeah. you get you know a, a, an occasional video sequence showing you know uh, what is it Atreus or Aknor I can't remember. The um, the main oh. character kind of addressing main you. character is Atreus. Atreus, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know the the occasional moment that you get that really doesn't expose much of the story, and it was always got the feeling like they never really intended to. I don't know how to explain it. Um, to give you the whole story of the world, they sure. wanted to add it or something. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of it was just told environmentally. Like, you would open up a exactly. drawer and you would see a bunch of syringes and empty bottles, and you're like, oh, I guess this brother is into this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the one thing the one thing that I really got out of Mist because I I played it, I didn't get to play it on a Mac. I played it one a year later when it came, finally came out for Windows 3.1. Um, and the one thing I really loved was it was a very, uh, all of the, visuals in the world were very textured, which I really, really liked. Like the books, especially when you opened up books, you always felt like you were actually opening up a book and not just staring at, you know, a GUI with a bunch of uh, pre-rendered text on it. I always thought that there was something very mm-hmm. tactile uh, about the world, which was really cool. And um, for instance, when you, you, you hit all those annoying lever puzzles in the game, yeah. every lever had a slightly different sound. That's which, true. Um, yeah. Some of them were, you know, very wooden sounding. Some of them were very brassy which I, I liked. I, they made sure that there was a, a lot of kind of environmental texture in the game. There really was. And I think, you know, all things considered, it's actually one of my favorite stories of any game. Oh, cool. It's a very simple story, but it's kind of like a story of of mystery and betrayal, and it's kind of a, like a Shakespearean sort of a story. It's a, a story that I've... Uh, was it you... Uh, uh, who was it? Oh, it was Trolls who said that he likes to sometimes tell uh, adventure game stories to his wife while they're trying to sleep or right. something. I did this right, for right, my right. wife once while we were trying to sleep. I told the story of Mist. It's a game that I've just played over and over enough that I can kind of nice. rifle the whole thing off. So it's it's a <laughs> it's a really nice story, and it, it is very rewarding. I think that it's told environmentally. Um, it's uh, it adds a lot to the experience. I think the fact that there are so many intermediate screen renders between point A and point B. 
Right. So it does a good, a pretty good approximation of actually navigating through an environment where, in fact, all you're seeing is a slideshow with hotspots on it. Yeah. And oh, and speaking of which, I think Adventure Game Studio has a mode that allows you to to do that, don't they? To to slideshow between rooms. Yeah, and to make a whole game, a first-person game in the Mist style. Oh, if I'm very not mistaken. cool! I didn't know that actually. Wow, that's I'm amazing. pretty sure. I, yeah, it's like the screens that uh, you can you can like remove your character from a screen if you're doing a close-up of a machine right. or something. But I think you can actually make a whole game in that perspective. Oh, so perhaps that would be a framework to do that. I uh, I didn't realize. You know, I, I I'm not hugely involved in the adventure game studio uh, forum universe, so I I didn't realize. To, so maybe that's just not one of the most popular forms of the genre, but um, I think that's amazing. I, I actually really enjoy first-person adventure games. Yeah, me too. Same, I mean, taking, running with Chris Olson's idea, I would love to just take a bunch of photographs of my neighborhood yeah. or something. You make a, a text adventure sure. of, your, of where you live. Oh, it, it would be pretty easy to do. That, that'd be great. Yeah, that, no that's actually, uh, in fact, I, I think you're right because I think I uh, asked you know, the resident wizards, being Francisco and Ben, a while back. I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing this you know, is there some framework to support this? And I think they were both like, yes, you could absolutely do it. In fact, I can't remember, I think it was Francisco who said, it could be just like Mist, dot, dot, dot. I'm like, oh, wow. okay, fair enough. <laughs> like, uh, that's, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the functionality is there in AGS, and I am not a, um, a, a frequent forum uh, uh, visitor there either, but uh, I, I do believe that is there. So one of these that's days, cool. that, uh, that would be, I, I think, a, a really great thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys ready for the next one? Or? Oh, oh, I yeah. wouldn't... Oh, sorry. Actually, two, two small comments about Mist then, just about my experience with it. Um, first off, when I... This was the second CD-ROM game that I ever owned, and I it wouldn't run for me. I'm pretty sure I had a, a single-speed CD-ROM at the... No, I had a double-speed CD-ROM at the time, and the game was performing very, very poorly for me. You had to run it off a CD because my hard right. drive wasn't big enough right. to copy it on. So I looked in the, in the manual for the game, and they actually mentioned the specific brand of CD-ROM that I had oh, as being incompatible no. with the game. Oh, oh. Which really sucks. So my dad was was awesome. He uh, this was a computer I think that he got to bring home from work. But we went to a computer store and paid a hundred bucks or something for a, a an almost identical CD-ROM drive, but it just wasn't mentioned specifically in the manual, and it worked perfectly for me. So that was really awesome. Yeah, that's great. And plus wow. the new CD-ROM drive, it was one of those drives where it didn't have a tray that slid in and out. It actually had this little uh, I don't know what you call it. Yeah, a caddy, a cartridge sort of thing That's where you would so remove funny. it entirely and put it. It was like a mini disc player, but like a real yep. sized one. That was just a sexy piece of technology. I loved oh, that. I, I was so jealous of people who had a CD-ROM with a caddy because they looked so futuristic. It had no benefit whatsoever, and no doubt it taxed the motor even harder than the, the tray must have. But it was just so cool. It was like it was like interfacing with a computer in Star War, uh, Star Trek. Yeah, you know, that's actually my first one was caddy based and. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, it was it was kind of neat. You did feel like you were, you know, unlocking uh, you know, missile codes or something like that. It was it was great. And, <laughs> oh, uh, totally. And it's funny that actually I mentioned my my friend Chris who who went on to work for Microsoft. It was um, uh, a couple shows back. You guys always oh, the firsts. You talked about sound cards and first sound card and everything. So it's funny at almost an identical experience. Uh, I promise I'll get back on topic here. But with Space Quest Three, Chris was the first one. I first person I knew who had. A yep. sound blaster, and uh, uh, they lived in or they lived in Madison, Wisconsin, which was three hours from us. So it was only holidays or you know Fourth of July. We'd always go up there and 
get to see, you know, he, he could like rebuild pinball machines. He always had fun stuff. There was always kind of new wow. things and new things to check out. So uh, I had actually, I hadn't seen Space Quest. Well, Space Quest 3 was the first Space Quest game I was introduced to. And then I, after that, I went to, you know, 1 and 2, and then they did the remake and et cetera, et cetera. But I was so blown away by both the scope of Space Quest 3, how awesome it was that you had to go to a burger place. I just thought that was so, like, who could possibly think of that to, to be able to do that and fly the spaceship around and everything else? And it was so kind of not anywhere near anything I would think of. But the fact that it had this unbelievable soundtrack, and let's be honest, the, the ad-lib or sound blaster music, I think, is, you know, probably sold a lot of ad-libs and sound blasters. I mean, what a great soundtrack to kind of introduce oh, somebody to that, that, that whole world. But in the same way, it must have been the following year, um, once again, he was the first person I knew with a CD-ROM, and it was one of the one of the Sound Blaster demos, which I am just I'm thinking maybe my maybe I've been mixing up stuff, but I and I think we chatted about this a, a long time ago on Twitter. Um, of course, there was the one with the parrot and the colors and uh, the uh, theme from the Nutcracker, but there was another one where it was like an intervening, like there's a marquee and there was this ambient noise of uh, like an old-fashioned like 1920s car, like something out of a golden wake where, you know, a car oh. would pull up and you'd hear rain falling and like a beep of an old-fashioned car and that was kind of all you got and then it cut to another scene and it was that kind of convergence of everything where it was clear that it was audio that was being streamed off of the uh, the CD maybe combined with some digital effects where I just went that is unbelievable and in the same way so, you know so we, we got home the, the year before and uh, you know had a sound bush. I'm like alright how many how many lawns do I have to mow how much caddying do I have to do to save up enough and I'll never forget Sam's Club which is uh, it's still around but it was the uh, it was kind of brand new back then where Walmart had their we're going to open a, a bulk price kind of club store and and for some odd reason sound blaster was sold at sam's club it's kind of the only place where it was available for twenty dollars less than it was at comp usa or tiger or whatever right. the the common u.s kind of distribution places were back then um and i remember actually writing his mom a check for the amount and she went to sam's Club and got it because you had to be a member and the membership was real expensive and then she actually <laughs> That's shipped awesome. it shipped it to to our house which was which was great i think it was actually a sound blaster pro but cd-rom same thing i just went all right and i think i oh, think man. i think my dad helped me out. he said all right you know we'll i'll save half of it and we ended up just purchasing one but uh um i, I can just i can still picture it you know the kind of um you know external and, and caddy loading and uh but it was again it was uh, i was kind of uh chris's fault that we uh but i'm just like gosh this technology just really kind of amazing so uh, so yeah, I, I wish I could find that demo. I, and, and again, it might have been something that maybe he did or, or kind of spliced together, but I, I just haven't been able to locate it. You know, one of the one of the old Creative Lab CD-ROM demos, but uh, kind of a mm. kind of an interesting thing. But anyway, didn't need to get uh, that's a, that's, kind that's of amazing. Derailed, the funny uh, thing is, I I know I've seen that demo too, okay. and I think I think it might have been a pack-in with my Sound Blaster 16 that came oh, uh, sure. on my IBM PS uh, PS1. Okay. Um, because gotcha. my my parents, we we actually had a a funny problem because our 286, um, we we had this crappy 286 that only had one IDE bus, um, so you couldn't actually upgrade it to a CD-ROM. And I remember they even had CD-ROMs that I think I somebody correct me if I'm wrong, actually ran off the parallel port. 
as an external uh, yeah. as an external drive. And mm-hmm. I remember my my I, I was begging my parents anything to get a, a CD-ROM drive for R two eighty six, and um, it was like four or five hundred bucks to get the external version. And I remember my mom and dad talking over, and they said, you know, basically, absolutely not. This was like sure. the early nineties. Yeah. Um, you know. Most of North America was in a pretty fantastic recession, and mm-hmm. my my folks, my mother was in the university. She was struggling to get along. My father was uh, working full time, and etc. So they said no. But the funny thing was, um, it was a few months later. I don't know what changed, but they said, okay, well, instead of getting just a CD-ROM, why don't we get a whole new computer? Nice. And uh, it was it was mind blowing. We went to Future Shop, this local kind of uh, computer distributor back in the day. And we went from a 286 8 megahertz with 640k RAM to a 486 SX33 with a, a 384 meg hard drive and wow. a double speed CD-ROM. It was like <laughs> it was like That's leaping a great leap forward. For mankind. Yeah, it was. It was just like I was. I was shaking when when we were you know in front of this machine, and I could just see like wow, it's got you know it's capable of 640 by 480. It, you know, it had everything I could possibly want. And, oh, I, I remember I, it was a trayload CD-ROM, so it had, you know, the stop button and the play mm-hmm. slash pause button on the front. Um, oh, yeah. And I would just, like, hit the eject button over and over and just watch the CD nice. pop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like a cat. <laughs> <laughs> That's bed goes up, bed goes down, bed goes up, bed goes down. <laughs> so, yeah, I was I was so excited, and I can't... I, I remember the exact sound of that... Disc, the the tray coming out, um, you know, this kind of grindy, grindy elastic sound, and uh, I, I'll never forget it. So yeah, well that's that's amazing. Gosh, that's great. Yeah. Oh man. All right. All right. Well, I've I've got just a, a couple more on the list. Um, so let's see, we covered Rebel Assault, Mist. Um, so here's one that um, you know there are a couple other obvious choices, but I'll actually mention this one because again it was uh, I encountered it via demo first did you guys did you guys play Return to Zork was that a oh I played a demo of that too that's about as far as I got but yeah that was a really pretty one so I I have a, a, a big affinity for text adventures I, I think maybe Chris were a little bit similar in that I felt like I was pretty terrible at them growing up and I mean I you know I started yeah, on yeah you know, the TI-99 4A very, very briefly when I was little, and then we had oh, Atari wow. 400 and 800. I mean, I'm talking, I was young. I mean, I was born in 78, and we had, I think, the first Atari 8-bit home in, had to be 1980, late 80, maybe certainly 81. Um, right. And, you know, those Infocom games from, from that era were, I want to say they were punishingly hard. There were a couple that weren't that difficult, but... Um, they're also very, very, um, you know, just obviously well written. And whether we're talking about yeah. uh, um, Steve, the the name escapes me. The, the guy who did most of them, or any of the others, kind of all over the place. Gretzky. There you go. Thanks. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, you know, I always always enjoyed that. And of course, I don't remember when uh, you know, because Zork started in the in the mainframe era. I think for the PDP or one of those um, right. uh, mini computers or something like that. So mm-hmm. I am pretty sure. Um, I actually did manage to, with you know, help of friends or whatever. I think we got through, um, you know, the first and second Zork. Just you know, getting out, you know, mapping everything on you know horrible handwriting and you know barely legible <laughs> stuff. But uh, certainly, there were some parts that were that were pretty complicated. So, um, 
I, it was, you know, I, I had very high hopes for Return to Zork, and I actually think it's it's somewhat uh, underappreciated. But in in it, it was frustrating because in the way that, in the same way, if you a parser based stuff, you couldn't, you knew what you wanted to do, but you t- had to play right. find the verb or find the, you know, it's uh, it's a stone, it's it's not a rock or, or something like that, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, some combination of sentence where the parser wasn't quite intelligent enough to really divine what you were trying to do um that interface in return to zork was it wasn't too bad but if i remember you did one thing wrong and it that that guy appeared and it just That's like right. booted you back to the beginning and uh maybe w- could you save <laughs> your game I, I i can't remember but boy that was it was great because there were <sighs> elements in zork that you had imagined that here they are and the graphics were pretty good it was actually kind of similar to the mist style where you had i don't I, I don't remember there being a lot of animation in place other than maybe like a waterfall or or some um maybe right. some uh some non-interactive type stuff going on and certainly it was in i want to say 320 by 200 but um uh what was it the um oh gosh not the waterfall but something with the the, the dam or or something where it had that enormous right. amount of significance in the first game to actually see that to see somebody's rendition of that was so neat because of course i think we had tried to draw it way back when and be like oh what do you think this looks like but uh um so i, I enjoyed it but boy it just it kind of the same way i felt about out of this world where you just died so often it was soul crushingly <laughs> difficult at points um yeah but, I, it, was, what, what, it was go ahead sorry oh um I, one thing i remember well i remember a bunch of stuff specifically because i when i got returned to zork i think it had already been out for a year so I didn't get the big box copy. I just got like the cheap jewel case copy from some like London Drugs or something, and um, which is like a local pharmacy that became a computer store, which is really weird. Um, the uh, uh, two things stick out for me with Return to Zork. One was the interface you're mentioning. For anybody who hasn't played it, Return to Zork is the first time that I know of which was a context-sensitive um, uh, UI. So meaning that when you click on certain hotspots or objects in the world, it only spawns interface icons that are specific to that kind of object. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for instance, if it's a rock, you can push it, and then it'll show you a little icon, animated icon of uh, an arrow moving a, l- a little block. Um, you can also right. look at it. So that, yeah, and, and that made it really overwhelming because some of these hotbox had like 15 or 20 different interface options. That's right. And That's right. But the fact that they were animated, not just yeah. the icons, but like three frames of animation or so, that That's was exactly so helpful. It. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, but it was really overwhelming. I remember one puzzle that drove me fucking crazy was, do you remember you, you have, Fro- I think it's Froboz the wizard at the start. He's inside mm-hmm. of a, a crystal right. ball. And he mm-hmm. goes, help me. I need a new battery, a new uh. battery. Right. So right. you put a you have a fucking battery in your inventory. You click <laughs> the battery on him, and, and it doesn't work. That's um, right. Uh, <laughs> so there was like a few of those moon logic puzzles, which just drove me crazy, and it really just kind of put me off. Yeah. Same, same here. Um, yeah. I enjoyed it, but I felt uh, like it kind of it got like an incomplete grade because there were a couple of those that I just you know, bash head against wall. It just, I couldn't kind of get past. <laughs> and it just, um, I, I remember it being nearly impossible to kind of save your progress. I want to say it yeah. had those, um, it would like, if you got to, um, 
gosh, what did they even call them anymore? Like a rally point. You, it would jump you back to that point, maybe. Yes, exactly. But, uh, exactly. But, it was kind of know, checkpointed, but, checkpoint, but poorly checkpointed. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and man. Although it had one of my favorite characters that I, I'll never forget. Do you guys remember? Want some the lighthouse guy? Of course you do. Uh, yes. <laughs> is that the lighthouse guy? <laughs> I think so. His name was yeah. Booze Miller. That's all I remember. Oh, he was oh, so funny. Jeez, that's right. Yeah, yeah, he's a great character. The whole game did kind of have a little bit of a whimsical, it's humorous it's, tone to it. And I, yeah. I didn't get too far in the text adventures, but they didn't really have that tone, did they? Um, oh. the, 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 first, the first work was a bit more serious, but it had its moments, um, little comedic That's the moments. only one I'm really familiar with. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but def- definitely not to that degree. It almost felt like just like goofy to me. Yeah. It was almost like one of the, the parodies that would come out later, <laughs> making fun of that <laughs> genre. Exactly. But I appreciated that. I like that. I thought it was a more attractive game than Myst, honestly. It yeah, was I, really I like otherworldly and painterly I, I, and a little grotesque yeah. and magical, but I, between the tone and the graphics, that's what really captivated me. But the game itself, I did find very frustrating, and that's why I never got too far in it. And actually, yeah. you mentioned the demo, and it did have a whimsical quality. I think the, the first Sork, if um, if I remember right, um, you, you did get, and depending on everybody's sense of humor, but uh, something that, uh, the, the very beginning, so you, you go into the house, you, you read the note, um, and then uh, maybe you turn it, or it says, you know, and it says, this space intentionally left blank. I, I got a right. chuckle out of that being a lot older um, because I have, <laughs> you know, navigation stuff where, you know, they cannot physically yeah, right. give you a blank page. They have to say that. So, but again, <laughs> we're talking big time engineer humor. I mean, you know, probably not, not a lot of people find that funny, but I thought, well, that's, oh, sure. that's uh, you know, just right off the bat, that's, that's kind of a, kind of a little bit of a, you know, kind of a whimsical touch, like you said, but the demo I, am I remembering this right? It, it said that it would almost the only other thing I think that comes close is the uh, the voice in that. And I'm really jumping around here, but remember the Nintendo game, the NES game, Blades of Steel, where it would make that swing blades. Of yeah, 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 right, and right, right. Sure. In the same way, maybe the same actor. Who knows? Uh, Return to Zork was <laughs> Return to Zork or something. You know, <laughs> it was, yeah. Uh, um, I can't remember if that was at the beginning or the end, but that demo was cut together in a very, very cinematic way where um, there were some, you know, of course they spotlighted, you know, the waterfall and the dam and the lighthouse and all these, these putts, but it, it almost seemed like you needed the voice going in a world where such and such. It was, it was kind of neat. There was a little <laughs> bit of dialogue interspersed, and uh, wow. again, it was, um, I, for some reason, those whether it's game trailers or demos from long ago that are, are so kind of interesting or, or really maybe that's maybe that was the only maybe you never got to play the game but you remember the the little demo or whatever that was uh that was one oh, yeah. too. and that oh and um didn't it start off with showing it like the text adventure version right. and it's like yeah, it did. you get to a house and then it actually shows the which house is, and i'm like oh which my is, gosh like, that's right. kind of mind-blowing like whole, wow go west yeah. and you see the, yeah. the note posted on the back yeah. of it so yeah that was quite a, a, a demonstration of how it was and how it is definitely well one thing i remember really specifically about return to Zork was i'd watch the intro video over and over because it had this amazing orchestral kind of right. music which was that's really right. kind of bombastic and and yeah. expressive, and uh, I, I think it might have been a real orchestra for all I know. Um, but I remember it was it was another victim of the posted stamp, stamp video sy- syndrome, where it would only render the video in the very center of the screen. Um, mm-hmm. But I still found it really, really impressive. Yeah, cool. Oh yeah, cool. That's that's definitely a, a good one. Um, so let's see. I've got uh, I think I've got two more on here, and then there are a bunch more, but they're kind of you know get into later, but. Uh, all right, so the next one, 
uh, kind of tacking on the same in kind of the same vein as Return to Zork is, of course, the Journeyman Project. Um, oh, that, great! You guys, play that one. We just talked, yeah, we about talked that a little bit about this oh, last week because that, that happened to be a Macromedia director. Ah, game. right. Okay. Well, sure. No need uh, to well, apologize. No, we we'll would love to it. hear your experience. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so this was one uh, I remember. I didn't get a lot of magazines at home, but for some reason, I got this really oddball. It was it was called New Media. It was a media magazine, and then I think it got bought by a French publisher. And it was really strange. It was it was very much. Uh, focused on Mac stuff and like get the right. you know get the most powerful Macintosh you can for ten thousand bucks and be able to do desktop publishing <laughs> and you know and but I remember it had these like unbelievable three D rendered things that either come from the first kind of iteration of three D Studio or whatever right. Mac centric program was there and you know it basically needed you know a whole r- half room full of computers you know chugging away to render this stuff right. but. Um, I remember seeing the, you know, they, they would occasionally delve into games and uh, uh, Journeyman Project was one that, that, that they had talked about quite a bit. Because I, I think it had, if it was Macromedia, I want to say it did get released on the Mac platform as well, I think. Um, Pretty sure it did. Okay. I think it was one of those few games that was actually compatible with both. Yeah, and, and there's, um, so I remember. I, 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 could be, I could be wrong, but I think Macromedia was cross-compatible, actually. I think it might have been. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think that was the whole purpose behind it. So, exactly. I, I, you know, they'd give it a snippet or screenshot or whatever. So I remember kind of really getting excited about it because it looked it looked really really good. And uh, and if you guys discussed it last week, I don't want to delve into it big time, but I I enjoyed it. I I found it uh, a little bit disappointing um, in that um, it, it it was obviously a very visually stunning, but um, I, I just felt like it it felt a little bit short of both Mist and Return to Zork for me. I, I for some reason thought. Uh, um, it's it's funny. I feel like the story was it was a richer, more compelling story, but there was just something about it where it, maybe it was in in the in the UI or um, just in the way that the rest of it, where there's music or something. And I think I was also really overtaxing my system too, so it wasn't an optimal kind of gameplay experience. But I enjoyed it, but I I was just a little bit disappointed. Um, ultimately, it, it was it was challenging. It was it was great to to finish it, but. Um, I did like Buried in Time quite a bit, though. That was the... Was that the sequel, or am I skipping? Um, It's either the the second or third. third. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And and that was like a a three-CD deal kind of a big thing. I I enjoyed that one quite a bit. But for some reason, I think it's because I had just had this kind of preconceived notion seeing it in print. I I kind of maybe imagined it would be something a little bit different. And normally I'm okay with that. Like if I see a movie or based on the book, I'm like, all right, I try to appreciate the movie for the, and not just say, oh, it was nothing like the book and books better, so on and so forth. But I don't know. Journey of Bright was a little bit disappointing to me. And I, I still, after all these years, can't quite figure out why. But, uh, but I, I did enjoy it. It was definitely one of those first CD-ROM games for sure. Certainly one of the first ones I had. But uh, what, what did cool. you guys kind of think of it? My memory of Journeyman Project, I only played it a little bit. That's one that I found kind of frustrating, too, and not only because of the gameplay, but I think just because of how long it took you to, like, turn 90 degrees or to traverse somewhere. But at at the same time, that was a real immersion-enabling thing, where, unlike Myst, where you click 
to the left of your screen and you've suddenly turned 90 degrees in one frame. Um, this one, it would have like a, you know, an eight second animation of you slowly turning to the side. And I right. mean, it is a little bit tedious. And this was, of course, the early days where the medium was kind of still trying to find its voice. Like, sure, you can have video, but should you? was kind of the question that had yet to be answered. But that really enabled this sense of presence. Like, you, it was you in the first person, and you were inside this world, and it exists beyond you, whether you're there or not. That's something that I do appreciate. Definitely. It's just kind of time-consuming to do anything at all in that game. Mm -hmm. And I forget if that was one where you could actually optionally skip to the end of each little video, and then I think I did that, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong game, but I think I remember, like, you know, you click left, and then I would click again to skip the whole animation, right. and then I I accidentally skipped one or two animations where someone told me something important, and then oh, I wandered around oh, aimlessly. Oh, sure, I did, I'm sure, yeah, that sounds familiar. Oh, man. Yeah, so, these are symptoms of just the early days yeah. of of the, the medium finding its, its footing, but... Right. Uh, it it did have a lot going for it. The production values were really impressive. The music was great. The graphics were very, very impressive. And getting around in these pre-rendered 3D environments was pretty pleasurable. I have to admit I was a superficial bastard when I got that game. I realize now, I, I might have said I, I, I had played Journeyman Project Turbo last week, but it, it wasn't that. It was Buried in Time. Um, mm. And I ah. specifically remember... I got the jewel case version, which was just like packed with CDs inside, and that was literally the only reason I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> I bought games for that purpose too. <laughs> which was I was just like, I can't believe I'm going to get four CDs for twenty bucks. Um, exactly. <laughs> and that was a major selling point for me back in those days. I remember installing it. I maybe played it a couple of hours, and it went up on the shelf. And it was one of those games. I had like one of those cheap Walmart CD racks. And it was one of the only games that wouldn't fit inside my rack, so it kind of just like <laughs> sat on top for about 15 years, and then finally, um, I, at some point, this went out to a uh, out to a thrift shop. I just gave up on, it, and I realized I will never, I will never go back for a good time. <laughs> uh huh. I know that that. Jewel case was like this bulging behemoth. Yeah. And if you like dropped it or something, I think it came on these extra hinges or something inside exactly. the case. So if you dropped it, then it would like Explode. swing wildly and you had trouble closing it. Indeed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that was like a that was like a, a metric ton of concentrated plastic, that package. Yeah, exactly. And I was like just so back in the day I was like so impressed that you could just get that much video. Um I, I don't know why I found video on a computer screen impressive, but I really, really did. I would oh, just sure buy too. games that had FMV for the sake of seeing the FMV. Mm. Totally. That's why exactly why I bought Iron Helix, which I'm not even going to talk about. Oh, I'm so oh, I'm so happy. I also got Iron Helix too. <laughs> I bought it exactly for that reason. It was on three discs or whatever. It was just nothing but video clips of you turning ninety degrees. Yeah. Exactly so through, through a it. really lame um, um, like maze. Yeah. So let's let's not talk about that game. Fair enough. <laughs> it's fine by Sounds me. Sounds good. <laughs> um, all right. All right well, Is that all you had on Journeyman Project, oh, Chris? Sorry. Or both Chris's? Yes. yes That's for, all I got. Yes, yes for... Okay. Yeah. Ditto. Good deal. All right, so I'm going to go a slightly different direction here, and maybe don't have to say too much about this, because it was... Um, uh, I think it, it started its life in a non-CD version, but it was one of the first ones that I got, and I think is is fair to talk about. Jones in the Fast Lane on CD. I, oh, I didn't, cool. I didn't, huh. I didn't play the original, and uh, as a quick, very quick aside, I think it is so interesting to look back at the 
Sierra Cuddle. I know Ben Chandler, Ben three or four has been kind of doing this, or he's looking for kind of titles that don't fit into the, um, into the typical Sierra, you know, a very oh, established stations of, you know, this quest, that quest sort of thing. And uh, I kind of feel like Jones of the Fastlane is one of those where um, I played the heck out of that game. And Me too. I, it's, it's so funny too. I've mentioned this several times in kind of different, uh, different uh, venues, but I did not play Sierra adventure games that were voiced for the most part. So, uh, right. you know, my, my CD-ROM or what I like Space Quest Four. I know, even though the you know Gary Owens, you know, rest in peace, was so great. It was much, much later that I went back and said, "Oh, I should probably give this a look." Uh, same thing with King's Quest Five, Space Quest Six, etc. It was all I, I didn't have the uh, the voice versions of them, or you know, I was kind of uh, maybe going a, a slightly different direction in kind of the games that I was playing. But Jones in the Fast Lane was, was def- I actually think for what the voice acting that they had, because it was a board game, it didn't matter if it was over the top or kooky. I thought that's what made it kind of charming. So I will actually yeah. say that the voice acting there, whether it was Sierra employees or not, I'm sure it probably was, was it actually enhanced the experience, which I, I suppose is, is a good, not often said about most of the early uh, Sierra CD-ROM games or the, the voiced ones, but uh, just no great music, too. I, I had no idea at the time. My, my friends and I, one of my best friends in particular, we were big on reading the credits, so we'd find some obscure name, like I'll never forget, uh, who knows where the guy is now, but there was a Sierra music guy named Orpheus Hanley. We're like, what a great name, you know, it was like buried <laughs> in the credits after all the main people but like, wonder what that guy did. Maybe he, you know, um, I'd never forget that for some odd reason. But sounds like a sci-fi. I know, right? You, you mentioned this big deep voice. Orpheus Hadley walks into the room, kind of thing. But uh, so if he's out there, <laughs> yay! Great, enjoyed your work. Uh, hopefully, he's still doing well. But uh, uh, but Jones of Vaseline, I guess most of the music was was Ken Allen, which I had no idea, and it makes perfect sense. Oh, but it cool. was just this uh, kind of uh, whimsical, very much like game of life type of thing, and. Uh, it was just it was just a lot of fun. I mean, it was completely different from anything Sierra had at the time. And I want to say, uh, I remember reading about it, the original name was Keeping Up with the Joneses, and there was some sort of trademark issue or something like that. Um, oh, mm-hmm. And instead of uh, kind of going with the Space Quest, let's just give them even more trademark problems and, you know, kind of that's kind of what we're going to laugh about and, you know, make the lawyers just go kind of crazy. They switched it to... Um, Jones in the Fast Lane, but uh, did did you guys play that one? Are you familiar with the the CD version at all? Um, I I have extensive experience playing Jones in the Fast Lane. This may be the first time I have heard that a CD version exists. I've only played the disc ah. version. Love this game like nuts. Okay, I'll tell a story about this. This isn't about the the CD-ROM version, but it's a very intimate story that I will share <laughs> reluctantly. <laughs> so uh, when my wife and I were still dating, we went. Uh, we spent the weekend at a bed and breakfast, like an hour out of town or so. And like on the way there, I'm like, while we're driving there, I'm like, oh, uh, by the way, sweetheart, I, uh, I I may have upgraded us to the nicest room in the whole place. Oh. She's like, oh, you should have had <laughs> real romantic stuff. And so we uh, go out for dinner. We get back to the place. We crawl in bed. I take out this this big clunky white <laughs> Pentium ninety notebook. Wow. And we played Jones in the Fast Lane for two hours in bed in this bed and breakfast. That's awesome. <laughs> it was Marry me. Extremely romantic, totally unforgettable. And I'd been playing that game for at least a decade already, wow. but that is by far my favorite that's, memory of it. We play it at least like ten times a that's year. That's great. That's awesome. 
That's that's my story. I came to jo- Jones the Fastlane really late in life. I didn't play it until about two years ago. On um, somebody on Twitter at the time had suggested. Um, I think it might have been actually Natalie or Rizalka. I, I hope you listen to our podcast, Natalie. Um, Hi, Natalie. I think Natalie said, "Oh, this is one of my favorite games growing up." So. I, I really reluctantly played it because I said I don't really have a lot of interest in playing a Sierra board game. Mm-hmm. And it is bizarre because it's so, like, it's you, you play it for two minutes and all of a sudden you're completely involved in the game. So very um, true, it, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's so much unlike the game of life to me because it actually, I don't know, it makes you want to work hard and makes you want to, mm-hmm. you know, keep upgrading your job, going back to college. And I was completely just, just, immersed in the game in the first few minutes. And the other thing I liked about it was it felt like this weird kind of, um, kind of it was kind of a genre-breaking game. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't really cleanly fit into board game or RPG or anything like that very cleanly. Um, I, almost, I almost feel in some ways that it's actually a role-playing game in many ways. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I just totally had a blast with it. The funny thing is, I, I only played the floppy version, too. I had no idea there was a CD-ROM version. And uh, it, it's interesting. I, um, you know, it, the version that I had, maybe it was a throw-in. Maybe it came on, you know, one of these. This was, you know, exceedingly common where you get, uh, um, especially with, um, if you, when you, you purchased a, a new CD-ROM drive or something, it would typically come with a suite of, you know, like right. Microsoft Encarta and, of course, you know, <laughs> Windows. You know, Often oh gosh, remember? Like what, yeah, remember it was mm-hmm. it was it Windows three point one with multimedia extensions, or was that three point zero? I can't even remember. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of those. And and then you'd you'd have some stuff there, but um, I want to say it was included in that. Uh, and man, it was. It, it, you make a good point though, and. So you're and it really you try to describe it to people. They're like, "Well, that doesn't sound like fun at all. It sounds really kind of yeah, kind of silly. exactly." But um, you're right. And the the thing that actually comes to to mind now was you had kind of different music for each. There were probably oh I don't know what about a dozen locations kind of throughout. Um, right. But and you had a marble, and I didn't realize it was a marble till I you know reading the manual many years later. But you kind of go around. But then there were these weird like you'd get to your house and or your apartment, and maybe it was a really dingy place if you had just kind of started out. And in the same way, kind of um, almost like a wild card, you'd get these. It, it would it would tell you what you did at night, and then kind of waking up in the morning. And do you remember they were all those kind mm-hmm. of these dark kind of. Not like, is that supposed to be funny? It was kind of hard to say. Like, I remember the one where it said, uh, you spent all night examining yourself under fluorescent lights. Yuck. <laughs> and it was kind of like, wait a minute, what's what's going on here? So it was kind of that odd kind of twisty sense of humor that... Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and with some of the comments that uh, that the, you know, the, the monolith burger or wherever you would go, some of the things right. were kind of like, yeah, they were funny, but they weren't, some of them were kind of like, ooh, that's kind of... I don't know, that's a little mean, yeah, but it's going out here. Yeah, all right. It was mm, yeah, kind yeah. of like, oh, man, I, I feel kind of like I need to upgrade. I don't want to be in this. I need to go to the other place and, you know, uh, get a oh, better job. I think my favorite, one that comes, my favorite one that comes to mind now is in the supermarket, where the supermarket guy says, our celery stocks at night. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's a cute so, one. So I'd love to know, um, I, and I'm sure it's it's probably not that hard to figure out, but uh, definitely some of the writers, it's like, you know, did they did they pull in – you know, Josh Mandel or one of these other folks to say, hey, I need some really sarcastic, you know, or, or just maybe they said, just just 
just go for it. Just you know, write some stuff and, and yeah. we'll put it in. And, Does uh, anybody know who who actually designed that game? Was it an Al Lowe game or was it somebody else? I, gosh, I don't know. It kind of feels like it, doesn't it? But yeah, I just don't know. Jeez, I feel horrible for not really being familiar a, with the credits of this thing. It's got a bit of an edge to it for an Al Lowe game. Definitely. Usually, his humor is yeah. pretty adolescent. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure. It'd be interesting to find out. And the only reason I know Ken Allen did the music was he did um, um, apt kind of in in the uh, in the wake of the. Uh, success of the space venture kickstarter ken allen did one too where he said hey i want to take my um that's right you know, some of my music and uh um you know and and kind of put it to an orchestra or kind of redo it and that has yeah. the distinction of I, this I, I hate to admit this i backed space venture as a birthday present for my best friend didn't back it myself and feel terrible about that i missed the boat the paypal thing closed and went oh rats uh, but the ken allen thing came out i'm like all right well i'm gonna back that for sure so and in, did, in the, the, did, the, did that one actually complete like did the kickstarter actually did he did he deliver on it because i never actually heard anything about it after that it's uh i it's think he's delayed. yeah it's delayed until space venture is done um okay. but it, it okay. did fund and i think uh, he said you know i'm just gonna have to um you know put this on hold until uh, space ventures finished, and I think, um, gotcha. and I think everybody, I, I would have to imagine, most of his backers were were either also space venture backers or associated. So I mean, I'm perfectly fine right. with that, even if not, you know, however many years of great music and everything else. But one of the one of the projects, and I, I don't remember, there were some stretch goals where, and I don't think he was able to do it. Maybe he will going forward, but they were he was going to go back to his high school, and I think they were going to oh. um, going to do one of the or maybe a medley of Jones and the Fastlane music, I think. I, maybe I've, I've got this wrong, awesome. but there was something oh, like that so. where I'm like, oh, man, a marching band doing that would be just fantastic. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, I have the soundtrack for this for that game. It's like seven and a half minutes right. long. Right. It's, really? it's the it's whole crazy. thing. It's just a bunch of like 20-second loops, but it's got so much... It's like charming and snarky and exciting. Yeah. And yeah. It's got like every range of emotions based on whatever's going on. There's like this nightly whiplash kind of <laughs> criminal right. uh, music, the mugger music, and it's got everything. It's a very <laughs> charming soundtrack. And, and I kind of feel like um, like uh, there were certain elements in The Sims that, whether they knew it or not, were kind of informed by some of the gameplay on Munson Jones. But um, I found that you know a lot of the uh, really, really like, oh, God, i got to play The Sims again. And, and you know, I, I kind of felt the same way playing Jones of the Fastlane. So I'm, I'm glad that's, uh, but so out of character for Sierra. There's another game that I, I haven't gone back to because it was, I think it was a remake called Oil's Well. Don't know if oh, it had. Oh, I remember Oil's Well. Okay, I have I that. Yeah, I, I, I need to just load it up. I, I, um, I remember that being, um, oh, we're gonna we're gonna redo this with you know VGA graphics. I don't know if it got a CD-ROM release or not, but I want to say for some reason Jones and Oilswell timeline-wise, I think they came out around the same time. And actually, now exactly. that I'm thinking about it, um, Jones and the Vaseline, I, is it possible that um, I mean maybe we're talking about the same version? Could I have just could this have been shovelware where they just put the you know the floppy version on the CD? Say. And you know it maybe was, that's it, maybe that's the case. Oils- Oil's Well was um, one of those Sierra arcade games that was jammed in uh, into all of these compilation packs okay, that Sierra sure. was trying to liquidate. And that's, I, I remember playing the Jones the Fastlane demo mm-hmm. off of actually an Oil's Well release. Um, okay. I think I got it as like a, hmm. a, a Sierra 10-pack or a Sierra 5-pack of games. And I remember playing Jones the Fastlane for about 30 seconds and saying, oh, well, this looks boring. It's just a board game. And I 
I really regret that I shut it down at that point. And then I played like two or three hours of Oil's Well, which was a really weird Pac-Man kind of ripoff. Right. Kind of yeah. Thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and it wasn't terrible. It was not no. a bad game, but I but I got kind of you know my my little bit of arcade. Um, fulfillment out of it, and then basically never touched it again for 25 years. Sure, sure, definitely. Uh, well, gentlemen, uh, so there are there are a couple of really really big ones left. Um, basically, that the two that are like cannot talk about without CD-ROM stuff without mentioning for me at least are Seventh Guest and then Wing Commander Three. And Wing Commander Three timeline wise might be a little bit too late, but unfortunately, I am uh, running just a little bit short on time, so. Um, well, no that, that sounds like a promissory note to me. You want to come back next week or potentially the week after? I would absolutely love to. Um, I will. Uh, uh, that that would be great. This has been so much fun. I'm glad that uh, we were able to kind of go off the beaten path a little bit and discuss some of the the really really absolutely go to ones, but that we got some uh, um, some of the other ones out there. But uh, Ab, this was so much. I enjoyed myself so much. I can't believe I'm looking at the time going. How could it have been almost two hours? It just seems like ten minutes. So, uh, mm-hmm. so yeah. So, so but uh, yes, that that'd be great. I'd love to do that. Oh, awesome. wonderful! We'll we'll definitely love to have you back. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. No problem. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. And, that was uh, fantastic. Absolutely, this was great, and uh, I look forward to talking to you real soon. Okay, same All here. All right, thanks, guys. Well, take ha- care now. Okay, ha- happy clear skies, Chris, and uh, can't mm-hmm. wait to have you back. Safe flight. Perfect. Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right, bye-bye. Right. And, and uh, other Chris, shall we shall we uh, wrap it up here and continue next week? Absolutely. Um, I don't really have any wrap-up notes. That's kind of weird. Yeah, me too. Okay, well, I'm going to include some stuff in the show notes, and I'll just quickly tell our listeners how they can get a hold of us. On the web, at squarefm.demodulated.com. Email is squarefm at demodulated.com. And on Twitter, we are at squarewavesfm. Yeah. So... Thanks a million for uh, joining us, folks, as always. Thank you again, Chris Olson, for joining us uh, as our guest. And uh, we would really love to hear uh, f- uh, feedback from our listeners about the early CD-ROM games that uh, meant a lot to them. So with that, thank you all very, very much for joining us, and we will uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you.